Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we have a very important topic, one that is rarely, if ever, discussed, and that is dress code and sneeze enforcement in girls' schools. We'll be talking about Beis Yaakov's and also modern schools. We'll talk about the whole gamut of girls' schools, and uh, we will talk about education when it comes to SNEAS. We'll talk about the enforcement and how should that be done. We're actually going to be talking initially about what are the basic halachic requirements for SNEAS, what has to be covered, what doesn't have to be covered, what's a chumrah, what's not a chumrah. And we'll, we'll use that as a springboard to talk about how the girls should be educated, what are the proper ways to enforce the dress code, and if not done correctly in the absence of proper education as to the values of tzniyas, and if we have overly strict enforcement, is that going to lead to the imbuement of kedusha into the girls, or is it indeed going to cause rebellion? And not only looking at the short-term effects of when we don't educate or enforce properly, but what's the long-term impact when the dress code is either overly strict or not? Not explained or improperly enforced. And we will also address the critical question, is this something that only will influence impact, negatively impact the struggling girls, or is it across the board? Almost all of the girls, even those that adhere to the dress code and in all appearances are okay with the dress code, embrace the dress code, is this going to cause them difficulties and issues as well and in how they embrace SNEAS requirements after they graduate from their school? Joining us on today's show to discuss this this very important topic, we have an impressive roster of guests. We will start out by discussing on the Hashkafic side of teaching Tznias, enforcing Tznias, enforcing dress codes. We will speak with the esteemed Rosh Yeshiva of Eisha Torah, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz, who will say something fascinating. He'll say a lot of things that are fascinating, but one thing that really resonated with me that just sticks out in my mind significantly is that he's asked by a number of post-high school seminaries. These are girls that have come through from outside of Eretz Yisrael, come through the high school system, come to seminary in Eretz Yisrael, and he's asked to teach them about Smnias because they either come with a lack of information, wrong information, or have been damaged, suffered through the process of enforcement. We will then speak with the great Rav Poskake author, Rabbi Zev Lef, who will also give us unique insights as to where we're doing it right and where we're doing it wrong with teaching Tznias and enforcing. And then we will turn to the halachic aspects of Tznias, of dress code. We will have the privilege of speaking with the great Posik, the senior lecturer at Yeshivas Or Sameach, Rabbi Yitzchak Breidowitz. What needs to be covered and what does not need to be covered? What is Deoraisa? What's not Deoraisa? What's Minagam and the like, and then we will speak with a recent Beis Yaakov graduate, Chana, who will discuss what it's like to be on the enforcement end of things, and then we will speak with two great administrators of institutions of schools in the United States of America, in New York, New York area. We will speak with Rabbi Yisrael Grossberg. He's actually involved in, in three schools. One is a high school that is the last stop. It's for girls who have been thrown out of every other high school, and he will tell us that when he interviews the girls and asks what were the issues that they encountered, and why are they coming Coming to his school at that point, he's actually the Mashkuyach Ruchani of this school. I asked him, what percent report that dress code, dress code enforcement were issues? And his response was 100%. 
100% reported that those were issues for them. And then we will culminate the day with Dr. Rivka Schwartz, professional educator, popular lecturer. She is an administrator at a modern Orthodox school. And we will see, very interestingly, that there are a lot of parallels between the enforcement, the teaching of Sneas and enforcement at the more mainstream yeshiva schools and the more modern schools. There are many more comparisons than contrast between them as it relates to adhering to dress code, the attempts of administrators to maintain proper dress code, how do you teach, and how do you enforce. Before we speak with our guest, just a quick uh, little insight based on Parsha. So I was looking for through uh, the Parsha, Parsha's Vayera, and also Chai the week thereafterwards, and uh, there were certainly connections when it came to Tznias, for example, when the Shlosh Malachim, the three angels, come to Avram Avinu and say, where's Sarah? And he says, Yibol, she's in the tent. That's obviously from a side of Tznias, of modesty, and also in Chai Sarah, we have uh, Yitzchak Avinu who is approaching, there's Rivka, and she finds out that's Yitzchak, her future husband, and it says that she covered herself with her shawl. So, uh, some say she covered her head, some say she covered her face, but also there we have the concept of Tineas and proper covering. But then I was looking through the Kedusha Slevi, and the Kedusha Slevi, Rab Levi Yitzchak Mirbidich, was talking on the Pasuk, Vayetza Yitzchak Lasuach Basada, which really has nothing to do with Tineas, and his word also apparently has nothing to do with Tineas, but in fact, it happens to be one of the, if not the major theme of this show. And I'm just going to go through the Kedusha Slevi real quickly, Vayetza Yitzchak Lasuach Basada. This is a famous Pasuk talking about when Yitzchak Avinu the Gemara tells us he went to Davin Mincha. But Rav Levi Yitzchak takes it in a different direction. He says as follows, Haklal, there's a general principle, Hachna'a mevi atzvu. Subjugation brings on despondency. It brings on sorrow. What does that mean? So he says as follows, that when somebody cannot do as they desire, but they are forced to do otherwise, for example, forced by somebody else to do something, when they are subjugated not to their own desires, but somebody else's, that brings on pain, that brings on sorrow. However, he contrasts that when a, somebody, Adam, Ovid, Habore, Baruch when we are doing our, an Ovid, when we're, when we're an Ovid Hashem, when we're adhering to the requirements of the Torah, and we are being machnia ourselves, we are subjugating ourselves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's very different, because that brings us closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that brings us Simcha. And he says, when we do that, we will be excited by that, subjugating ourselves to what is proper to other people who are forcing us to do something. That's not enjoyable. But when we're doing the right thing, then that is enjoyable. And he says it based on that pasuk. What is the lashon of Yitzchak? Tzchok, happiness, simcha. And then he says, what's the lashon of suach? That's hachna, subjugation. And sada, vayetza yitzchak, is happiness, lasuch. When he subjugated himself to the sada, he says that is kedusha. When we subjugate ourselves to kedusha, that indeed will bring simcha. And he says at the end of this, when we subjugate ourselves to kedusha, doing the right thing. And indeed, Surrounding ourselves with the Kedusha, which would include Sneas, Mize, Yetze, Sasan, Vesimcha, from that will come extreme happiness. And I think that's a, an important point here as we discuss dress codes and enforcements of dress codes. Is it coming from the perspective of subjugating the girls to what we ex- tell them to do? And we're subject, subjugating them because we make up these rules or we have these rules. It doesn't have to be made up, but we have these rules, but we didn't explain to them. It gives off the appearance 
appearance of being a chok and not a mishpat. And if it's not understood, it's simply looked at as being subjugated to administration or to teachers who are indeed forcing these rules on the girls as opposed to if it comes from the perspective of explanation and understanding. And being based in the values of Kedusha, then indeed we will be able to fulfill this mandate of that we'll go out and we'll be subjugating ourselves not to the whims of people, but what is the proper thing to do? That would be which will bring on Sasan Vesimcha. Before we go on to meet with our guests, we'll quickly go through the riddle of the week. Typically, I uh, like to take out the riddle of the week from this week's Parsha, but I'm not going to take it from this week's Parsha. I found something. It's on a Pasuk. It's on some Parsha. I'm not going to say what. And that's going to be the question. There is a reference somewhere in the Torah that the non-Jewish women, they color their fingernails. That means that they put on nail polish, in particular, so that they should generate looks, they should garner attention from others. And their incentive, the reason, their motivation for that is to incite others to do an Avera with them. So where is the source for that in the Torah? That the Umas Ha'olam, the women of the Ulamas Ha'olam, that is why they use colorful nail polish is to incite others, inspire others, motivate others to do an Avera with them. One additional announcement before we go to our guests. Stay tuned to the end of the show. We are going to hear from David discussing the riddle that he asked last week, and we'll also hear the responses that we heard here at Headline. So stay tuned. That'll be at the way end of the show. Now let's go to our guests. To leave a message, call 732-806-8700 and press number 2 or email at info at headlinesbook.com. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Berkovitz. Rabbi Berkovitz is the Rosh Yeshiva of Eshatara, the founder and dean of the Jerusalem Kola, which has been around, I think, about 20 years, and the Rav of Sanhedrin Rochevet, in addition to many, many, many other activities. Rabbi Berkovitz, thank you so much for joining us. Very welcome. <laughs> so, Rabbi Berkovitz, we're talking about uh, Tznius, Chinuch and Tznius, dress code enforcement, Tznius enforcement in Beis Yaakov's and other girls' schools. And on a Chinuch level, is having a, a strict dress code an effective way to teach the importance of Tznius? We have the laws and we have to adhere to the laws and we get the girls used to wearing modest clothing that way? Or is that, uh, are there other ways to be mechanech the girls as to the importance of Tznius? Um, I can't say for sure um, that a school can do without rules. Um, this, this is true in every area. Um, if, there, if you don't have rules, then there's, there's chaos and anarchy. Um, on the other hand, as a tool in Chinuch, I don't quite see it. Um, as we speak, I wonder, I wonder what you mean by tznius. I wonder what people mean by tznius. I wonder what this word modesty means. I think the greatest proof of it is that women come out of uh, whatever institutions they were in, whatever high schools and then seminaries, um, they were taught rules, they were, whether it's the rules of the school or they were told that this is halacha. But any new situation that was never addressed before, they do not have the tools to decide 
what is the proper way of dealing with it? Is this something that I should be wearing? Is this something that I should be doing? Um, Sneas is a set of values, sensitivities. Uh, it's creating the atzilus of a, uh, a basi slow. And for that matter, the atzilus of every yid. It's a lot more sensitive with women, but Sneas applies to men and women. These are, these are sensitivities that have to be developed. And the way they're developed is not by giving all kinds of rules. The way they're developed first and foremost is in discussion. Um, perhaps they have to be introduced to the whole idea of what Sneas is. Um, I, 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 I must say that education, Jewish education has really gone up in, 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 in so many areas. Um, I mean, face it, our, our sons and our daughters know, know so much more than, uh, than Jews have for, 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 uh, for generations. Um, that is true of information. Um, in terms of attitudes, there are certain attitudes that perhaps are very popular. Things like that. Um, I know maybe I should drop Emuna. I don't know if there's enough focus on Emuna. I think it's more Bitachan and Hashkachofratis. Um, in terms of Sneas as a value, I've seen very little of it. Baruch Hashem, I've seen the beginnings of it in, in different places. But um, by and large, most schools are still not teaching the value of Sneas. They are not sensitizing their students to what it means to be more refined, what it means to be acting appropriately for, for, for being part of the Mamleches Kohanim V'goy Kodesh of a special nation. Right. So I, I've taken a poll of a number of uh, girls in high school um, and uh, girls who have recently graduated high school. And uh, what I was told was that they are handed a dress code, the requirements. Uh, it's more like a penal code that they're, they're handed and you have to adhere to X, Y, and Z. And, and there's no explanation given. So what, what would be the proper approach then if we're going to institute laws? And, and I wasn't uh, saying that we shouldn't have laws. You, you obviously need to have a code. There's no question about that. The question is, is that that in of itself a proper way to educate as adhere to having the Rashi and Tosfos explaining the, the uh dress code. So we're going to go about and being mechanach the girls, how do we go about that? Do we say, welcome, first day of school or first week of school, and let's explain to you the basis for the rules and let's let you, um, let's give you the, the flavor of what it means to be modest and the reasons for the rules. I think it's important, it's important to make basic rules. Uh, I would hope that their standards will go up once they are taught values. Once they're taught values. The value of nichabadus, of really what it means to be a more respectable human being, which is what Sneas is. It's a matter of nichabadus. I've always taught Sneas from, from the source, the source, the mitzvah of Sneas, the mitzvah S of Sneas, the Bir Alacha brings it, the sheet is a smack. It's the mitzvah of the mitzvah when you go to battle, make sure to take a shovel with you because there are no washrooms on the battlefield, make sure to cover up for yourself. This has nothing to do with a lot of the stuff that's out there today. This is really teaching you that a Jew has to develop a different sense of self-respect, so much so that even in battle where people just lose every, every bit of being human, they become totally animalistic, everything operates on instinct, don't lose your self-respect even there. Kol Shekain, be it in the privacy of your home, be it within your society, make sure you always maintain, develop, a sense of self-respect. This is really the assault. There are lots of details. Yes, we find other parshas in the Torah. We have minhagim, we have drabanans, but all of that is revolving around the number one concept 
the, the Iker concept, this is the granddaddy of all of Tzniyas, which is that we're refined people. The Jewish people are refined people. And we're supposed to behave and dress accordingly. And of course, it changes with age. And it changes with your position in, this, in society. But you've got to learn these appreciations. So yes, you've got to make some basic rules of how you can come to school. But sooner than later, sooner than later, women have to be taught, have to be sensitized. They have to understand the concept. I would hope that they're going to appreciate and be proud of it rather than see that it's oppressive and can't wait till they leave school so they can do what they want. Right. So, so um, on, on that, along those lines, um, you know, right now, unfortunately, many schools are not there yet, right? They're not teaching the value. So somebody goes to high school and they're given this book of rules and there are things on there that they don't relate to don't relate to and vis-a-vis the earrings that they have to be X, Y, and Z, and the the stockings have to be this thickness and this size and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, your your bag has to be carried like this and you can't even have clear clear uh, nail polish on. There are a lot of rules that, that, that they're not familiar with. What's the short-term impact on the girls? Is this something that they say, okay, these are valuable things or do we, uh, do we, uh, bring on rebellion on the other side when, when they have these rules? Listen, you can generalize. There are lots of different personalities there. There are women that thrive by rules because they don't have to make their own decisions. It's so, much, so, it's so good to have clear guidelines and do whatever they tell me. There are others that are naturally anti-authority and whatever you tell them, they're going to want to rebel. And then there are others who find that their, their freedom of just expressing themselves and, and presenting themselves the way they want to be, which for a woman is so important. Uh, um, although we have, there are issues with men too, but um, for women, this is so, so important. And, and there are many that, that really feel that it's infringing on my ability to, to express myself in the way I feel is appropriate for me. And if you could educate them properly, they'll find other ways of expressing themselves and, and they may redefine who they want to be. But until they're taught that, they do resent it. And, uh, um, you find a lot of that in the seminaries in Israel coming off, coming off a high school, um, that the girls are, they're almost post-trauma. Like <laughs> they're, they're, uh, a, a lot of them, a lot of them really, really need, they, they need, whether it's they need their space or better yet, they need a good positive education. I know over the years I've been asked by many seminaries to come and speak because they feel that they're losing it. They feel that the girls are coming in uh, with a lot of resentment and they don't know how to rebuild it. There are seminaries that have people on staff that do it and they're great. There are other seminaries that call people in. There are other seminaries that are still trying to resist, but I'm sure they're going to give in as well. Um, so I wouldn't generalize, but yes, it's a real issue. It's okay. a real issue of women, um, of, of women that are carrying a lot of baggage because of the, they feel the very much that they were suppressed without being given any explanation for it. And, and then what's the long-term impact of that? If, especially if they're not given the proper chinuch when they come to seminary and it was uh, unfortunately not done well in high school. Well, what's, what's the lasting impact there when they have their own children, for example? They, uh, I mean, first of all, as soon as they're out of, of whatever structure they're in, once they're out of their, they're out of their seminary, um, they just uh, t- they take advantage of their freedom because they have no... Uh, because they do not really have much sensitivity, they were never given it. Um, the way they the way they dress certainly is not in line with it's not in line with what the Torah had in mind, without question. Um, and uh, um, obviously, they create an atmosphere in the home where the children then are are 
see as norms things that they're going to be taught otherwise, which makes life even more complicated for them going through the system. Perhaps. All in all, I think the, the, the problems are obvious. So is the solution, and it just has to be done. We, right. you, you make rules, yes, that you teach rules without giving, without sensitizing them to the real concepts, without giving them a real sense of what is dignified and what isn't, getting them to appreciate it. Without that, you're not teaching SNEAS and you're creating all, all sorts of psychological issues. Right. So, so SNEAS is, is the value when we go about trying to put rules around it and the specifics there of rules. There are rules. The rules right, right. all fit into this. Right. And the, what, the rules we find our principles. Right. The but, rules... Yeah, when, when deciding on, on, on the rules to teach, we, we obviously have some SNEAS books that um, are much more machmir and some are, that are much more lenient. If we have a mechanach or a principal that wants to go and learn what the halacha is, how do you go about doing that? We want to seek the values and we also want to implement the values, practically speaking. And uh, you know, I, I have uh, in front of me, in fact, you know, one, one book that's very thin and covers within a, a few pages something that there's another three volume set that covers and it goes into a lot more details. And one will say, you need to cover the knees and one will say, you need to uh, cover 10 centimeters below the knees. And there are seminaries, high schools that I'm familiar with that go 15 centimeters below. So how do we go about attaching the rules to the concept? The first thing you gotta know is you gotta learn the sugya. You gotta learn the sugya of sneers. And they're hard, they're difficult, they're difficult. To and once you do that, you decipher what's going on, and you realize that you realize that much of what is taught as halacha is not. That's one thing. There's this concept of das yehudis, which is extremely important, which, which is which is not to be a prutza or a paritz going against communal norms. Um, has been has been translated as all sorts of absolute law taken from different communities and different poskim. You know, combining the Das Yehudis of different communities all over the place and turning all of that in, into absolute halacha, which simply is just a, a mistake, an outright mistake. Um, I think it's very important to give over the principles. Why is it that some say that it's got to be so much beneath the knee, for example? Why? Where is that coming from? Understand where that's coming from. Uh, it's a sensitivity. It's not about inches. It's not about inches. It's not about millimeters. That's not what it's about. What it's about is what is the impression? Now, obviously, you know, a woman that wants to keep the halachas of tzniyas as she finds in the sources without any neshama either um, is going to find herself, yeah, perhaps covering the parts of the body that she has to, I think when she does the right kind of acrobatics, you know, to pull a little here and pull a little, a little, a little there. But she forgot to ask herself, uh, is my appearance dignified? Is my behavior dignified? Now, all of these things are coming from, from, from good places, and you've got to figure out how to translate them into your society, how to translate them into your situation, whom you are, what society you're in. These are principles. These are mishpatim, they're not chukim. They're principles. They're very important principles. Yes, the, the body proper has to be covered, and there are clear definitions for the most part of what the body proper is. But that's not the only thing involved here. There's a general impression of what are you giving off? I, I, I love that explanation that they're mishpatim and not chukim. That, 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 uh, that makes a lot of sense. When we talk about a more modern school, if a modern school 
that the parents don't adhere to the minimal requirements of the halacha. And that obviously is going to cause an issue because if you see your parents doing less than required by halacha and they're going off to school, how does a school in a, in a, a modern school decide on a dress code if they try to adhere to the, even the minimal halacha, it's just not going to be accepted to people. W- would there be a problem with having a, a dress code that requires less than halacha because of tavasta merubah tafasta? Um, this is a similar question that, that has to be asked with regard to keeping kosher. Um, when you're dealing with schools where the, parent, where the parent body is lax when it comes to halacha, uh, this has to be done very sensitively. If you're going to go teach teach your, your students everything and they go home and uh, they're facing a big stira, it's not going to work. They're going to be terribly confused. You know, the, the, the same way that a good school that's thought out knows what to push and what not to push, um, they have to make the same decisions with regard to tzniyas. I would, however, not compromise on the concepts of tzniyas. So the neshama of tzniyas has to be taught to everybody. I think this is something that can be understood by people, whether or not they're willing to keep halacha. The concept of tzniyas is something that can be appreciated by all. In terms of what you are going to enforce in the school and what you're going to advise even the girls to do, so long as they're living at home, that's something that calls for a lot of sensitivity. The schools that have the, the, the insight and tact to know how to handle the kashra situation will also know how to handle the tzniyas situation. Mm-hmm. The answer is not always it should be hefker. You know, it, it has to be done very, very sensitively. At the same time, if you think that you're going to take a girl in high school um, and, and try to get her to live in a way that's totally different than her parents at that age and think that she's going to survive it, um, you're making a very big mistake. She's not in an age where she does not need her parents' approval, her parents' acceptance. Um, the parents, if the girls are, are going to come home so much more from feel judged, um, you're creating a very dangerous situation with regard to the future of this girl. And that's very difficult when you're supposed to have standardized rules and you have uh, 25 girls in a class, each, each with a different background. Of course, you know, of course, of course, that, these things are the one, one thing that you do have is today, there are so many schools, Belia and Hara, that are dealing with such different clientels. Um, that it's a lot easier to narrow it down already. Right. Um, so Rabbi Berkowitz, one last uh, question for you. Uh, if there are girls that out there that are having difficulties with the uh, dress codes in their schools, and it's not only the, the struggling girls that have these issues, it's uh, across the board, girls that are going to many schools have difficulties. Being told what to do is not easy, but even so, if you have rules that you're not familiar with that don't make sense to you, they sound like chukim, they don't sound like mishpatim. So what would you be your message to those girls? How should they handle it if they're really having a difficult time with the dress code? Four years is a long time to go through um, having really a, a what would, would be viewed as, as a noose around their neck to, because uh, re- really they're not making their decisions on their own individuality. Yeah, I would say, first of all, seek out someone who, who can give you a taste of tzniyas. You know, rather than, I'm not going to tell a girl to rebel against the school, she's going to get thrown out, where's she going to end up? But you have to seek out someone that's going to make sense of it to you. It's not like there's nobody that knows. It's, 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 it's not like this is such a secret. Although it's not so well known, but it's not a secret. There are plenty of people that understand tzniyas, men, women, seek them out, get a taste of tzniyas, un- understand what it's about. Uh, I believe everyone can appreciate it. It, It's so, once you develop a sense for it, it, it's something that makes a person feel proud.
I don't say this is the end all. Of course, there are going to be women that are that 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 have either have already suffered or or are just so anti-authority that they're not going to be open to. It. No, we'll, we'll never. We can never claim 100% success or anything too close to that either. Um, but for so many that are suffering, that are really suffering, if they would only get, and they have to seek it out. Today, it's not difficult to find things. You know, seek out seek out a healthy, positive, rational understanding of sneers. And uh, and life life will be so beautiful. <laughs> no, by the way, you talk about women. I'm telling you, it's the same. Do you know there are there are, are there are men today that are not from because they got thrown out of their yeshiva katana because they showed up in a blue shirt. Now, um, of course, you got to make rules in yeshiva katana. In Israel, I'm talking about Israel. In Eretz Israel, come on, I mean it's outrageous. It's outrageous. You know, you have to know. You, you have to know what to do with kids that can't fit in, whether it's passing them on to another place or, you know, finding some alternative to a universal rule or making some kind of compromise with the kid where it's between you and me and let's not tell anybody. But that this poor kid is going to be denied a whole future of being, being part of observant jury because a Rebbe in Yeshiva Tana didn't know how to deal with him because he was a rule breaker. Oh, he wore a blue shirt. You know, we can't live with such a thing. We're trying to save any, every neshama we can. And we're killing them. We're destroying neshamas. We're being maracic, our own, our, own, our own kids. It is not uncommon for teenagers to struggle and for a struggling teenage boy to express his struggle by wanting to put on a blue shirt. We've got to understand where he's coming from. You think it's going to destroy your yeshiva? Find a place to send him to, a good place to send him to. We'll be respected and appreciated and not a place with a bunch of losers. Right. Rabbi Berkowitz, very powerful uh, words there. I think we're going to have to do a, a show all for men dress codes, boys dress codes in, in high schools as well. Obviously, there's less to speak about. Uh, the blue shirts and the, uh, the very colorful socks that seem to be uh, the norm nowadays. But message well taken. Don't leave that child homeless. Or angry. Right. He, right. All right. Thank you very much, Rabbi Roku. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. That's pleasure, Rabbi. You do wonderful work. <laughs> Continue. Joining us now is Rabbi Zev Leff. Rabbi Leff is a renowned posek, an educator, an author, a Rosh Yeshiva, and the Rav of Matis Yahu. Rav Leff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the zechus of being here. So Rabbi Lev, it's always a pleasure. We're talking about, indeed, a, a difficult topic, I think, that is not addressed very often. And we'd love to get your input on it. Dress codes, Tanias enforcement. And, and I have a broad question to start with. Enforcement of dress codes is a big issue, even in the most observant yeshivas, Haredi girls' schools. Now, why is that? Because I think uh, I once heard in the name of a, a very famous mechanechus, but I don't remember who it was. She said that uh, men have a yetzirahara to look and women have a yetzirahara to be looked at. And when you're dealing with the yetzirahara, um, even in the best places, HaKadosh Baruch who gave the Aseris Hadibros to Dor Dea, and still it includes all of those Isurim, when you're dealing with the Yetzirahara, there's nothing that's too Haredi or too from people or people, and they have to uh, you have to deal with the Yetzirahara as they exist. They exist in everyone. Uh -huh. 
Uh, so, so as we say, uh, Kadosh Baruch Hu created the Yetzer Hara and, and also created the Torah Tavlin. So what would you say is the Tavlin here? And uh, are, are we teaching Tznias? How should it be taught? And is, is that a solution at all? Okay, I think that if we would teach Tznias properly, and I have experience of giving over uh, a lengthy uh, shear on the idea of Tznias, to Beis Yaakov teachers and principals. And the feedback I got is that uh, this was an eye-opener for them and a way to give over Tznias to their Talmidos in a way that perhaps it would make more of an impression on them and a desire to keep it, uh, to take a uh, hour-long shear and condense it into a minute or two. Right? Uh, I'll tell you the basic idea is the following. Tznias is not that there's something wrong with the body and it has to be covered. Because if that would be the case, uh, then we'd have to cover animals' bodies also, because if human bodies, there's something wrong with them, surely animals' bodies. And I don't know of any place in the world where they cover animals' bodies or people don't go to the zoo unless the animals are dressed, except I was once in Los Angeles and I saw people there walking dogs and cats that were dressed. But that had nothing to do with sneers because the people walking them were not dressed. In any, in any, right, what is the idea of sneers? Before the hate of Adam and Chava, it was clear that the body was merely a suit of clothing that the Neshama wore to be able to function in this physical world. And basically, human beings are Neshamas who in the physical world need a uh, inner space suit to be able to function like an astronaut goes to outer space, he can't function the way he is because the conditions there are different than on Earth. So he needs a suit with a oxygen supply, with pressurized suit and a radio to speak because there's no sound waves. Comes back to Earth, he takes off the suit, he can function very nicely. As long as we were in the Shamas in a spiritual world, we could function very nicely without a body. We could see without eyes and hear without ears and get around without arms and legs. Once our Nishamas came into this physical world, they need an inner space suit to wear to function. In a physical world, you need eyes to see and ears to hear and so on. So before the Chait, it was clear that a human being is a Nishama and the body is merely a tool to enable the Nishama to function in this physical world. But once Adam and Chava sinned, and they used their body in against their neshama, it became unclear, which is the ikr, the body or the neshama, because you see the body can do things that are not in keeping with the neshama. And beyond that, maybe there is no neshama. All you see is a body. So to make the statement that there's more here than meets the eye, don't get distracted by what you see on the outside. The ikr is not what you can see but it's what's hidden from view, which is a neshama. We cover our body to make that statement. Animals, there is no neshama, just a nefesh. So what you see is what you get. There's no reason to cover a body, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu made. But basically, when a person covers their body in the areas that could be distracting because of the Yetzirah, because the Rabbanu wants a strong connection between a husband and a wife, and that includes a physical connection. That is generated partially by what people see. So in order not to be distracted from the nishama and, and focusing on the body, we cover those areas that could be distracting and make a statement, I'm not an animal. I am a human being with a nishama, and therefore don't be distracted by the parts of my body that could be distracting 
and focus more on the neshama than I am. Uh, that basically is the idea of tzniyas. And Rav Lef, this is what you teach in the post high school seminaries for girls who come from the United States and other places. Hundred percent. And, and what's the feedback that you typically get? You said it's eye opening for them. Have they never heard this education? That from these girls, that if I would have been told that um, years ago, I would have had a much more positive idea to tzniyas instead of a negative idea that I'm trying to cover up something that's negative and that does not fit with how I look at myself. Uh-huh. And the person would know that by covering up the parts of their body that are important, they're making a statement that they're something more than an animal, right? It's a much more positive uh, understanding of what sneeze is. Now, if we move from the education part to the enforcement part, because schools have to grapple with having short-term results of having a dress code and having tzniyas in school, but on the other hand, uh, having results and short-term harshness and severity can have a negative impact short-term and long-term. So what do the girls report is happening on the enforcement side? What I I would say is the following. I don't know 100% what the girls uh, say, and the seminaries are different because I'm I'm dealing with the American seminaries, so it's not the same as I had daughters who were in the Israeli seminaries, much, much different of the, um, the enforcement. But I, I think there are, are basically three areas that have to be dealt with, and they can be dealt with differently. There's those things that are halacha, pure halacha. The areas of the body that have to be covered, and if they're not, you're going to negate halacha. There, like any halacha, a school has a responsibility to enforce halacha. They can't permit girls to come to school in a way that they are transgressing halacha, that that encourages them to, to, to dress, transgress halacha in other areas. They should be educated and explained that this is the halacha, and, uh, and uh, they should be warned and given a chance and uh, not, not uh, thrown out right away, you know, and sent home or whatever, and given a chance to comply. That's, but that's Bottom line. Then there's areas that are not necessarily halacha, but they're um, chumras that have been accepted in the in those areas. Um, I'll give you an example that's probably controversial, and that is wearing stockings. If you have a dress that goes be- beneath the knee, the Mishnah Bura says that that's, that's sufficient halachically. The Chazonish argues and says you have to cover the area beneath the knee too, but it doesn't have to be covered with a dress. It can be covered with stockings that are not uh, not translucent, uh, trans, uh, transparent. In any case, so there, um, if the dress goes beneath the knee, um, uh, halachically, there's what to rely on, but minigamakom, if that's the minig in that place, which many places that is the minig, that women have to wear stockings, then uh, a girl can be told that, look, this is the minig, that's what we do, but it doesn't have to be treated as pure halacha uh, with the same the same strictness as something that's pure halacha. Then there's a third Indian, and this is what is really the area that causes the most dissension between the girls and the hanhala. And that is things that are not halacha and not minig, but because they have a, a, um, an implication in that place, they don't allow it. For instance, here in Eretz Yisrael, um, if you wear a denim skirt 
that is a sign of being streety and um, not allowed, for sure, in any of the shackles here, pretty much. In America, I know Choshev Rebetzins and Rosh Hashiva's wives wear denim skirts. So what's the idea? Is it mutters at us? So I'll tell, if there's time, I'll tell you a word that'll take me three, four minutes to tell you. And that's the following. Love to hear it. When we left Mitzrayim, the Rabbanishim gave us a mitzvah to take gold and silver. Everybody knows that. But there was something else they were supposed to take, and that's clothing, smolos. And they were told what to do with the clothing. Put it on your children. Very difficult. Lemaisa, one of the zechuyos we had to leave Mitzrayim is we didn't wear Egyptian clothing. And now the Rabbanishim says, take Egyptian clothing, even put up, what kind of chinuch is that? I think the Rabbanishim wanted to teach us a lesson that there could have not been anything halachically wrong with that Egyptian clothing. It couldn't have been shatnez, it couldn't have been natsanua, because if it was, how could you wear it in the midbar? How could you put it on your children? But said the Rabbanishim, I want you to know there's nothing 100% halachically wrong with that clothing. And therefore, I'm telling you to wear it in the midbar and put it on your children. But had you worn that same clothing the last 210 years of Mitzrayim, you never would have gone out. Why? Because in Mitzrayim, wearing that clothing was to be like a Mitzri. In the Midbar, there are no Mitzri. You can judge the clothing on its own merits. But in Mitzrayim, you have to judge it on its implications. Same thing. There are certain things that are 100%. You look through Dalit, Chelte, Shulchan Aruch, they're 100% okay. But in that place, at that time, they have implications. They stand for something. And then they become Aser. So that is the area that most Teenage girls can't understand that what is show me in a Shulchan Aruch where it says this is not okay, but it's not in the Shulchan Aruch. It's in the implication it has in your place at your time. In a different place, it could be 100% okay. I'll give you another example. When I came to Eretz Yisrael, I decided that I'm getting rid of all my um, uh, sukkah decorations from Chutz Laaretz. I'm only going to use uh, Israeli sukkah decorations. I went to Be'asharim after Yom Kippur to buy Israeli sukkah decorations. And they're all strewn out on tables in the, in the street. And as I get closer, I say, you know, these sukkah decorations look very familiar to me. And as I got closer, I said, yeah, they're Christmas decorations in the original package. They say Merry Christmas on them. And all these Yushalmis are buying them like they never saw anything like it in their life. I was sure I would go into Meisharim on Cholomoyed and see a sukkah decorated with a little baby and a mother and a lot of shepherds around. They tell me, see, Gansa Mishpacha, but we can't find the father. When I said, these, these Yushalmis never saw a Christmas tree, never saw Christmas decorations. For them, it's 100% mutter. I'm sure if they would go to America in December, they would say these goyim stole our sukkah decorations. But for an American, in America, to use these decorations, maybe so what's mutter 100% in one place is ushered completely in a different place. The same thing over here. What has implications in one place may not be tzannuah, where if it doesn't have those implications in a different place, maybe 100% tzannuah. That's hard for a uh, a, a teenager to understand, and it's even harder to explain to them. So those areas, there has to be a certain leeway where until the the the, the girls get to a madrego where they can understand and accept das Torah, that this may be okay, but it's not okay for you. And it's not okay in this situation. Um, they have to have a little bit of understanding to to be able to have leeway in those areas that are not only not halacha, um, but bichlal not dependent on halacha, but dependent more in hashkafa. Yeah, the more the more stylistic issues, uh, style and 
I, I will tell you, Rav Lef, I was in Mea Sharem a couple years ago, and they are still selling those Christmas decorations, the red and the green. And it says on it, made in China, Merry Christmas on it. Right. No, I've seen, I've seen on Purim, you shall need and dress up as Santa Claus, the whole family, because they think it's some kind of Rebbe with a, with a, with a, a red Bekisha. They have no idea what it is. The, the school, the Beishako near my house, so I can hear sometimes the music they play between classes. They were playing jingle bells once. I went to them and told them, you have no idea what you're playing, right? This is not, not Beishako music. Oi, Gewalt. Oi, Gewalt. Rav Lef, always eye-opening. We really appreciate your joining us. Thank you so much. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz. Rabbi Breidowitz is a renowned posek. He is a senior lecturer at Or Sameach, and he fills many, many other roles. Rabbi Breidowitz, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, thank you, Rabari. It's always a good uh, place to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, Rabbi Breidowitz, uh, uh, we'll start on a personal note. I, I had lunch. I had the privilege of having lunch with my wife today. We didn't go out. We haven't done that in a while, although we should once in a while. But, uh, you know, we had lunch here at home together. And our our conversation was about school dress codes, SNEAS enforcement. And, and, and she said something very wise as she basically always does. And she says that dress codes are not about SNEAS per se. And I'm not going to say this anywhere as eloquently as she did, but she made a number of, of important points that I think will frame our conversation. She said that so much in the dress code is about what the hanhala, the administration of the school sees as proper dignity and refinement for their students. And uh, another point, number two, is how you want to display your school to the world and also what groups and hashkafas you want people to associate with. So, you know, for example, just to make this more concrete, there are many items, numerous items in a dress code, in a school dress code, or there could be many items in a school dress code that are not halachically mandated, but Nevertheless, required by the school, for example, no white soles on the shoes or only navy sweaters, not even black or the hair set in a certain way, no nail polish, etc. Now, those are non-halachic issues. Nonetheless, they could be important. And oftentimes they are important. And schools certainly have the right to make those choices. But what, what is important, I think, is to still know what is halachically mandated and what's not. And that's what I would primarily love to discuss with you. And as an introduction introduction to that, if you could walk us through the halachic classifications of the SNEAS requirements, you know, number one, most famous is Das Moshe. Also most famous is Das Yehudis. And uh, third, following up is Minogamakam. And, and then we would say for everything thereafterward is not going to be halachically mandated, but it would be a, a style item or a preference item. So if you can walk us through the definitions, because typically when we hear about Das Moshe and Das Yehudis, it's in the context of hair, then we'd like to apply it in these other contexts as well. Uh, yes. Well, uh, these halachas are, uh, are complicated and uh, there are many, many opinions. Uh, I always tell my Talmidim, if they're taking a multiple choice in halacha and one of the uh, options is machlokas, uh, they should always circle that one and they'll probably get some partial uh, partial credits. Uh, there are really, uh, well, well, first of all, I, and I think your other speakers will address this, so I'm not going to address it, the arichas. Shniyas, uh, above all, is a sense of attitude, a sense of notion of modesty and humility in the presence of Hashem. And as such, 
it is an obligation, a sacred obligation on men and on women, meaning to say the musag of tzniyos as a spiritual concept is not limited to dress length or fashion or whatever it would be. I think it's a very important idea that we're dealing with attitude. Nevertheless, Hazal recognized that because of man's uh, sexual desires and, uh, and women's attractiveness, that one of the most important manifestations, and it's a manifestation of how a woman behaves in a tsunua way, is in the inyanim of Lavush and how she covers body. But I, I do want to underscore at the risk of repeating that essentially all of that is a means to an end of being a tsunua personality. Now, it's important that there are really two different subyas, two different ideas of tsunias, in halakha, in terms of halakhic point. One is, which we're not going to talk about a lot, is that I, as a man, am not allowed to recite brachos and say kriyashma and learn Torah in the presence of a woman who is not dressed in accordance with the laws of Tzmias. That is in Shulchan Aruch Arachayim, and that is dealing with the idea of amiras devagim shebikdusha. I'm allowed to think divrei Torah, but I may not be allowed to say it. That's why if a person's on a bus and uh, they can't avert their eyes from improperly dressed women, they should think in learning and not necessarily say words of Torah. So that's Amiras Tavarim Shebikdusha, and that we're really not going to talk about a lot, uh, but that is one area of halacha. The second area, which I think is our major topic, are the inherent obligations of a woman to wear a lavush sanua in order uh, to uh, not implant in men improper sexual thoughts and in order to enhance her tzniyos as a bas Yisrael, of standing with me Hashem. So here, you, as you correctly noted, the Mishnah Kesubos divides uh, this universe into two basic categories, and the postgame have added a third category. Category one is what is called Das Moshe, and Das Moshe, we would perhaps say, refers to the basic, the Oraisa Halachos, of what must a woman cover, what must a woman, or what, what may a woman leave uncovered, and we'll call that Das Moshe, although I'm gonna qualify that in, in a minute. And then there's a second category that is called Das Yehudis, and that is defined as the voluntary customs that Benos Yisrael, meaning all of Benos Yisrael, were Makabel, really in the time of Chazal. So we can't, that does not change. According to the vast majority of Postkin, even the category of Das Yehudis remains fixed because when Chazal made these laws, they were looking at the Minhagim of Benos Yisrael HaKesheros. And uh, the Mishnah Kesubos is not so much dealing with the obligation, but as the consequence. We talked about if a woman is a veres al-das Maisha or a woman is a veres al-das Yehudis, the husband uh, may, and according to some Rishayim, must divorce her without having to give her a, a Kesuba. And uh, from the Sugya, what emerges is the following. Uh, if a woman, uh, uh, a married woman, has uncovered hair in a public place, that is called overes al-das maisha because that is a violation of a chiyiv the araiza, and uh, that's not das yehudis, that's das Moshe. And the Gemara had to say that although the Mishnah calls reisha parua as das yehudis, the Gemara gives a ukimta that her hair is covered, but there are certain openings in the kisei kalta, etc. But a pure uncovered hair would be a violation of das Moshe. Okay, das yehudis are the Minhagim of Benos Yisrael Tzunumas. Now, in truth, 
the Gemara gives us only one example of Das Moshe in Sneas context and one example of Das Yehudis. One example of Das Moshe is Rosh Hashanah, and the one example of Das Yehudis is Zoroaseha Megulites. Her arms are uncovered. We'll talk about what part of the arm. Yeah, I was, I was about to interject if that's the top or the bottom, but I'm getting ahead of I'm going to get to that. Now, even uh, the great uh, Rav Falk, Seichat Tzadik Lebracha, who was truly a very, very great Posek, uh, but I don't think I am uh, dishonoring his memory by saying that his Sefer tends to be on the very Machner side, Ozwad uh, but again, I have great, great admiration for a truly uh, wonderful Thomas Chacham and teacher of, of so many years, even Ralph Falk, who always uh, is Machmer and all of his Inyanim, says it is clear from the Sudyaks of us that Rosa Megulais is not Das Mesha, it's Das Yehudis. Now, that doesn't make much of a difference for us, but it does mean that it's not a Doraisa Mamish. And he also says it's clear from the Sudya that even the upper arm being uncovered, a woman wears a shift without sleeves at all, is only in the category of Das Yehudis. But again, I'm going to clarify this. Uh, and then there's a third category that the postcum have developed. And that is, if in your community, uh, women have taken on various other hanhagos going beyond das moish and das yehudes, that becomes obligatory to you. Now, that third category is the source of a lot of contention and a source of a lot of confusion, because what do we mean by your community? Sometimes maybe that's simple if you're Chabad, so Chabad is your community, if you're Bells. But uh, sometimes, you know, people live in mixed communities uh, and they shachris, you know, uh, their husband goes to the Yeshiva Shaminyan and Mincha, they go to the modern Orthodox Minyan. And the, although the Das Moshe and Das Yehudis does not change, uh, but this third category, you really have to define what is your minna or what is your community rather. And then you have other issues. Uh, when you're bound by your community, is that only when you're in the community? What if you go away for shots? What if, uh, you know, the Belzer woman goes away to, uh, to a modern Orthodox? Can she be modern Orthodox, so to speak? Right, so those are a lot of different challenges I'll try, I'll try to address. But as I say, from the Gemara and Kisugos, you only have these two cases that are absolutely defined. We have uncovered hair is Das Maisha. Although, actually, to be to be very, very clear, I mean, I don't, we, we don't have time to be mine in the sugya. Uh, the only thing the Gemara says is uncovered hair is not Das Yehudis. It doesn't specifically say it's Das Mesha. Some say that it's another category of being Iver and Sneas the Arisa. That's not necessarily Das Mesha. Das Mesha, in context, refers to other things. When a woman is machshul or husband, they're giving a tray for the life. But it's not Das Yehudis. Durasem Agulos is Das Yehudis. Now, we then, all of that is in Maseches Kisubas. We then have a sugya, a very short sugya, but a very important sugya in Maseches Brachos that talks about certain parts of the woman's body are treated as erva. It mentions hair is erva. Uh, it mentions shok. We'll talk about shok. Shok is part of the leg is erva. Kol. And, and it mentions kol. Kol singing, uh, kolisha, which I probably is not going to be our topic. The asut, now, the Gemara in Brachos does not use the vocabulary or the dichotomy of Das Moshe or Das Yehudis. It uses the, like, uh, the, root, the, the term Erva, and that's because the Gemara in Brachos is referring to Amiras Devarim Shebekusha. But the Paiskim seems to seem to assume that whatever is defined as Erva would be Das Moshe, meaning uh, 
erva mamish uh, that elevates it to a derise. So, so Rabbi, yeah. right, what's coming out of this then is when it comes to das motion, das yehudis of body parts, we're saying the zroa, which is the upper arm, would be das yehudis, and the shok, which is the leg, apparently the top of the leg. Yeah, whichever the part of the leg. Yeah. Arm would, any part of the arm would be das yehudis. We'll talk about exactly. And any uh, and any part of the leg that is supposed to be covered, we'll talk about that too, would be das maisha or whatever it is. It would be a doraisa. And uh, the reason is basically, it basically was based on Chazal's assessment of what is more sexually stimulating to the male observer. And uh, the leg is more than the, the arm, etc. Uh, so now I'm going to try to go over the, the basic halachic uh, consensus or machlokas of these areas, and I'll try to identify in each one what is das Yehudis and what is doraisa, erva, or da, das Moshe. So let's first take Zeroisel Magulai's arms. It's very, very clear from Masechus Pesubos that un- uncovered arms is only das Yehudis, which is still, you have to keep it, uh, but it's not das Moshe. So what, Rabbi uh, White, is that, that's going to dictate the length of the sleeves then? That's correct. That's correct. So let's talk about let's talk about that. So here, what's very very interesting is that most paiskim, not all paiskim, Rafal, you know, will give you the machmirim on it. But this includes both the Mishnabura and even the Chazanish, even the Chazanish, who's machmir in other aspects, say that zoraya only refers to the upper arm, and that means from the elbow, including the elbow, upwards, has to be covered. And by that, I mean. Uh, even if the sleeve length uh, does cover the elbow, but it has to be covered in such an iphen that even if the woman is sitting with her arms or reaching, in other words, obviously, even though both the, the part of the arm below the elbow, like the Mishnabura and the Chazanish, does not have to be covered. You only have to cover the upper arm and the elbow, but it has to be in such an open that it's not going to slide back and reveal the elbow. Now, not having uh, daughters and not teaching in Beis Yaakov, I'm not an expert in exact lengths, uh, and then you have charts for that and the like, but that's an important point, that all of the areas that have to be covered have to be covered even when the person is in a stretching position or whatever. Uh, so but in terms, yeah. That's going to be a bigger issue for sure. Yeah, also the arms, but but the legs, for example, when a girl is walking upstairs or sitting down. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to I'll get to it. I have to go in order here. So again, so I think it's fairly, fairly clear uh, that in terms of uh, arms, uh, halacha does permit most postkim, Mr. Burrach has an ish, they do permit uh, the lower part of the arm below the elbow to be uncovered. Uh, it is recorded that although the Chazanish did matir in his own home, he was extremely machmir that the arms be covered all the way to the uh, to the uh, to the hands, and uh, he would also tell people who would visit him that way as well. So he did feel it was a very important tanhaga. And perhaps in Bnei Barak that became the community minute. It probably is the community minute and the like. But Meikar Adin, uh, that would be okay. So that is when we talk about Zoroa. Rabbi Breidowitz, we've covered arm. Arm is a big issue. But when it comes to Tznias enforcement, dress code enforcement, I think a, a bigger issue, 
really possibly the biggest issue is leg, the length of the skirt. So walk us through what's the halachic background, all the machlokes, and where do skirts come in and stockings come in? Because this is frankly a real pressure point when it comes to, to the dress code issues. Uh, yes, uh, as is all matters of halakha, there are different opinions, different ways of applying it. Uh, the general halakha consensus, we know, of course, when we were in Brachos, shok bi'isha erva, what is the shok, is defined objectively as an erva, does not depend on custom. Uh, it is an erva, mishtama da'oraisa. But there's a very big machlokas, what part of the leg do we mean by the term shok? Now, throughout Shas, generally speaking, the term for the upper leg is called yerech, thigh, and the lower leg is called shok. But the Mishnah Brura, based on Mishainim, famously says that for purposes of the laws of Tzniyas and Kisoy, the term shok refers to the upper leg and not the lower leg. Therefore, according to the Mishnah Brura, the din of shok be'isha erva simply means that the upper leg, including the knee, has to be covered. The lower leg, on the other hand, below the knee does not have to be covered uh, because that is not nichlau in the category of shok. So now, according to the Mr. Brewer, stockings on the bottom would not be required. It would, appear, it would appear that according to the Mr. Brewer, even a bare lower leg would be mutar in terms of the din of shok isha erva. And the din of stockings, which of course is noheg, would be based on the community minhag, which the Mishra does not address specifically, uh, but it would not be because of shok bi'isha erva. Because mimanavshach, uh, stockings alone don't negate erva. For example, let's imagine a girl didn't have a skirt, her skirt went above her knee, but she's wearing stockings. Nobody's going to say that stockings will help to uh, expose the upper leg, because why? It's form-fitting, and whether it's sheer or even if it's opaque, it still accentuates the form. So mimanavshach, uh, if you're telling me that uh, the lower leg is also erva, then stockings wouldn't help. And if, on the other hand, the lower leg is not erva, stockings would not be necessary. So we would have to conclude that the concept of stocking is based on community minug, which then becomes binding, uh, but it is not because of the text of Shaykh Beisha Erva. Now, this is the sheet of the Mishnah Brura, and this indeed is the Hanhaga that I think most of Klal Yisrael is Noheg. And I just want to emphasize once again that the requirement of covering the knee means in all positions, whether the woman is sitting down, whether she's stretching out, and consequently, different schools have different requirements that it has to be maybe 10 centimeters below the knee. Again, I'm not an expert in fashion sizes, but there is a logical reason why the skirt does have to be uh, somewhat below the knee just to ensure, not because the lower leg is erva, but to ensure that the leg from the knee upwards does not get exposed. It's, it's kind of a necessary adjustment uh, that has to be made. Uh, again, uh, skirts should also be loose because there's a separate sneeze problem in accentuating the form. Now, the one thing I do want to say is that there are other opinions that are more machner. And in particular, there's a lot of uncertainty how to understand the Chazenish. The Chazenish is not as clear uh, as we would hope. Uh, the Chazenish is generally presented as taking the position based on the rest of Shas, that Shok is the lower leg and Yerech is the upper leg. And as a result, many interpret, this includes Rabbi Yaman Yehoshua Silver, B'nai Brak, a very, very Chashava Talmud Chacham, who knew the Chazenish and spoke to the Chazenish personally, and he understood 
understood the Chazanish to say that shaykh means the lower leg is an erva, and as a result, the skirt must go down to the ankle. Uh, once again, stockings wouldn't help, according to that, right? That's why stockings are either not necessary or they don't help. Uh, and uh, the Chazinish is often represented as taking this position that even the lower leg has to be covered midin erva. However, I have to say that Rafalk, and this is interesting because Rafalk had, had a reputation for being extremely machmir, but here I want to say that he actually takes a fairly liberal or lenient Havana of the Chazinish, in which he says the Chazinish does talk about the possibility that the lower leg is erva, but he feels in reading the Chazinish, the Chazinish is actually naita, that the lower leg is not erva, and as a result, the Chazinish fundamentally agrees with the Mishnah Brura, and therefore, the need of stockings below the knee would only be via communal uh, minhag. And, and the like. So apparently there is a machlekes about how to understand the sheet of the Chazinish, but I do want to say that there are for sure earlier Makoros, the Chaye Yadam and the Shulchan Aruch Harav, who do say that the lower le- the lower leg is in fact Erva Midin Shaykh. So there is a makam in Halacha to be machmir, but as I say, uh, given the fact that Snias is such an uh, enormous challenge for our high school girls and the like, and given the fact that the Mishnah Brura is our posek achron, and given the fact that, according to Rav Falk, even the Chazanish is maskim to the Mishnah Brura, I think we can certainly be saimich. I'm very comfortable. I'm not saying any fiducium. I'm very comfortable in being saimich in covering the knee, and if the communal minog is to have stockings, have stockings, but certainly in the privacy of the home, I think a bare lower leg uh, would, would, would be acceptable, provided the knee is, is covered. So at least in the Chazinish, we do have this machlokis. So Rabbi Roy, if I could recap where we are, and then we'll take one more step. But when it comes to arms, the zroa, the accepted sock is that the upper arm, including the elbow, has to be covered and ensuring that the elbow stays covered even when there's movement of the arm. And anything past that would be dependent on the menagamakam. Yes. When it comes to the leg, shok b'yisraelva, the discussion is the shok, the upper leg, the lower leg, the shita of the Mishnah Brura, which is for the most part been accepted, is the upper leg is the shok, the knee has to be covered, and again, ensuring that it stays covered despite movement, but below that would be dependent on the minagamakom. That's correct. Okay, so step number three would be how about the neck area, front and back of the neck, what would we have to be covered there? It's very clear the face and the neck do not have to be covered, uh, but where the neck is mechubber to the body at the collarbone uh, does, and therefore, technically, if a shirt is open too widely, uh, that may expose the, the collarbone, and technically, that is also a problem of tzniyas. Now, I just want to mention one more thing, and maybe I shouldn't mention, I may get in trouble with this. Um, in the Modern Orthodox community, there are poskim, there are poskim, and these are poskim, you know, that one could respect, who are actually much more mako, particularly not on the leg so much, not on the leg. Nobody allows a skirt above the knee, but on the arm. Uh, and that's why you'll see, for example, I'll mention two shitas. Uh, one was reviewed to Herzl Henkin, again, Sikoyno Lebracha, he was uh, a nifter a short while ago. Uh, he allows a tefach above the elbow to be magula. Uh, that, is that based on tefach be'isha erva that you require a whole tefach? So up to a tefach would be acceptable? That is based on tefach be'isha erva. Now here I have to say 
that I believe Rev Falk, Zichrena Levracha, has a much stronger argument. Rev Falk argues, and I think it's it's very, very mistavra, that Tefach is only relevant on Amiras to Varim Shabikdusha. It is not a Hetzel to be Megala. Uh, but Repentin was willing to moderate. And then we have another Shita of, uh, again, a great Talmud uh, Chacham, who is a bit avant-garde and uh, non-conventional, but you know you, you can't deny his uh, brilliance, Rav Nachum Rabinovich, again, the, the Rosh Shiva of um, Amal Adumim and Har Bracha, uh, and uh, he took the position that as long as most of the upper arm is covered, most of the upper arm is covered. Rubo Kekulo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now these are, I think, not uh, in the normal halachic consensus, but uh, there are modern Orthodox communities uh, that, that do follow them. So I just want to be Malamed Zechus on uh, some things that might be Yitzhak Daifin. But I think in terms of operative basic halacha, I think we go, arms must be covered through uh, up, uh, up to and including the elbow. And on the Mishnabura, we follow the, uh, the skirts must cover the knee, even when sitting, stretching, going upstairs. Uh, stockings are not required as Das Yehudis. They will be required uh, based on the minag of the community and the minag hamakam. Yes. So again, that's kind of the basic basic overview of the of the halacha. Uh, and so, Rabbi, guess, Rabbi right, right away, in, in, in excess of that, you know, we we have the clothing. Um, and you could get by with clothing that is still not sanua. You're covering everything properly, but it's just form-fitting. It's bright. It's flashy. So what's yeah. a good standard for how clothing should fit, tight-fitting versus loose-fitting, and the yeah. coloration of the clothing? Yeah, this is, this is extremely important, and, um, uh, and, and that is in many, many ways – uh, length is less important than, than form-fitting and tightness. Uh, sometimes uh, we have a situation where women are complying with the letter of the law in terms of lengths. All the lengths are, are proper. All the shakels are good. Assuming you can have a shakel, maybe you'll do a show on, on, on that. <laughs> in Eretz Israel, every day I see these wall posters against shakels and, 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 and the like. Uh, but it's form-fitting. And uh, that is very, very uh, bad. Because Sneas, again, I, I, I think I once saw a writer on Sneas put it, uh, a woman should be attractive to her husband in particular, but not attracting. It shouldn't attract the attention of people. In fact, even the situation where some of the women wear burqas, you know, that, that movement where, uh, you know, they want to cover themselves up totally, you know, in a sense, that's, not, that's even connected Sneas in some ways, because that makes them stand out. Uh, and, and the like. So, except, you don't, except you don't know if it's a male or female underneath. <laughs> right, right. So here, uh, Rav Fox's book, again, and Rav Fox's book is kind of the Bible of Sneas in, in most Beishakovs today. Rav Fox is almost like a fashion manual where he talks about stripes and, and spots and, and colors. And in some ways, you know, a, a post doesn't always get into those details. So I, I prefer not to get into all of the details. But I think the overall idea is don't be an ostentatious person that is drawing attention to your sexuality and to your power over men. Now, in terms of, and therefore loose is better. Loose is better than tight. Uh, more muted colors is better than loud colors. 
But again, uh, a Bas Yisrael you know, can be attractive in the sense that uh, put together nicely uh, and, and, and the like, but it should be in a way that's not attracting attention in that way. In that sense, this is where what the schools need to do. Again, it's not my role to tell Beishakos what to do, but that's where the schools need not so much to lay down rules, although within the school they can lay down rules, but to inculcate attitudes. I think when a person, when a Bas Yisrael has an attitude of what Sneas is, then I'm going to say intuitively they're going to know what's right, what's not right. So some things are not going to be so quantifiable, but we should aim in our educational system to inculcate a sense of what is right and what is not right. Mm-hmm. And then people will make their judgments accordingly. So, so in one area of halacha, there may be objective definitions. I think in other areas of halacha, we have to rely on the cultivation of intuition, which comes from Torah learning, it comes from Torah values, it comes from role models uh, and the like. But ultimately, I I don't know if you're going to be able to legislate uh, every little aspect of women's fashion. Right. So, Rabbi Brighto, it's one one final question for you. That that concept of be attractive to your husband, but don't garner attention, don't draw attraction, yeah. don't don't draw eyes. So, w- would we say the same thing? And and I guess it's it's two questions. Number one is uh, other areas like makeup, earrings, length of hair. W- would those uh, those apparently are not das Moshe das Yehudis? They could be minagamakam or stylistic issues. So yeah. um, that's question number one. What, where do those all fall out? And length of hair would be for unmarried women. We won't get into the shaitl, Shiloh, which we talk about uh, unmarried girls. And, yeah. and, and also, what would be a standard for propriety or impropriety when it comes to those uh, additional items? Well, again, uh, th- there is, I mean, even in the, in the, in the books of the Nevi'im, when Yishayah is giving Musr to the generations before the Chorban, he talks about big day shachats, or nashim shachsaniyah, which is certain arrogance and trying to show up your body. Uh, so again, a lot of these things, jewelry, makeup. I mean, you can find Makairis here and there where Chazal talk about uh, promiscuous behaviors, etc. But once again, I think a lot of this is intuition. And maybe, maybe, I don't want to get too critical here, when a school is too focused on particular rules, the overall intuition is not being adequately developed. Uh, and sometimes there'll be a revolt against those uh, rules and the, uh, and, and the like. You know, the Medrash says by Yitzhak Mitzrayim that the Jewish people in Mitzrayim were like a little bird in the hand of a captor. And you have to hold the bird very delicately because if you squeeze the bird too much, you kill it. If you hold on it too loosely, it's going to fly away. And that's kind of our predicament. If we're going to be too demanding, too machmer in these areas, we're going to kill this neshama. On the other hand, there have to be standards. Otherwise, it just flies away, goes off the derrick. And, uh, you know, there's a famous Debar Torah, the Gemara said in Sanhedrin, about Chava, that Chava told the Nochash, Hashem said, we're not even supposed to touch the tree. And the Nochash pushed her against the tree and nothing happened. And said, you see, nothing's going to happen. And the Gemara Sanhedrin says, when you try to add to the Torah, you wind up uh, subtracting from the Torah. And the Mephoshim say it wasn't Chabah's fault. It was Adam's fault because Adam did not communicate her what Hashem said. Adam said, Hashem says not to touch the tree. What that means is that we do have to be careful 
in communicating what is the Oraisa, what is Drabanan, what is Minha, if we simply throw everything into the same path and we say that every little Hanhaga, every school rule about uh, not wearing, uh, I don't know, not wearing a black sweater, it has to be a blue sweater, and we say that is the same severity as the Oraisa, as uh, wearing a miniskirt or, or whatever it is. So at that point, when the student feels, well, I'm going to wear a black sweater, so I might as well, I might as well wear a miniskirt. It's all the same. It's all the same. same. I don't do that. I don't do that. So it is important in our chinuch to kind of give a sense of the nuances of this. Now, I know there's a cost to this because once you start giving nuances and differentiations, so uh, people get confused and et cetera. Uh, And again, I'll leave it to the educators uh, to to ponder this. But I I personally do believe that we do have to differentiate. Um, that's because that way a student can know that even if I can't keep every rule of the school, but I will keep the doraisas, I will keep the core, I will keep the essential values. They're not going to throw out the baby uh, with the uh, with the bathwater. And that's especially critical when uh, the girls graduate and uh, aren't under the auspices of the school to know what really is the priority. And if they want to start, cut, start cutting corners, that the proper places to cut corners would be the style and preference issues, as opposed to the Das Moshe, Das Yehudis, and depending on where they live, the Minagam Lakum. Yes, very good. And again, I, I just want to repeat maybe for the fifth time that we also have to work on communicating attitudes because when the when the attitudes are communicated properly, uh, one develops an intuition as to what is good behavior and that will be their guide as they confront questionable areas. Rabbi Breitowitz, I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Rabbi, and much, much aslach Joining us now is Hannah, our recent graduate of Beis Yaakov, to share with us her experiences having gone through four years of Beis Yaakov. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Hannah, just so we can set the table here, uh, what type of Beis Yaakov do you do attend? We're not going to talk about which one specifically or even the geography, but give us a little bit flavor. Very mainstream or to the right, I would say. And the dress code. Talk to us about some of the details in the dress code, uh, the usual items and the unusual items. Um, I don't know what the rules are in all the other base alcoves, so I can't say what's usual or what's unusual, but I'll tell you what we had. Um, we were required to wear our uniform button-down blue shirt with a collar with a navy sweater, not a black one, but a navy one. Um, a pleated skirt that was six inches, or for those outside of the United States, um, 15 centimeters under the knee, sheer nude colored stockings, and shoes that were not sneakers or booties and did not have white soles, earrings that were directly on the ear, not huggies or dangling, um, no nail polish, hair either shorter than the shoulder or put up somehow. Um, I don't remember anything else right now. Uh, How about clear nail polish? No, no, no. Not even that. And when it came to the skirts, Rav Falk advises or says it's required 10, 10 centimeters. He's from England. So he talked in centimeters, which is less than six inches, certainly less than 15 centimeters. So, so uh, it seems like your school was more machmir than Rav Falk when it came to the length of the, of the uh, skirts. It's possible. Okay, very good. Um, wh- when you came in, you started in ninth grade. Did they ever explain the dress code? Did they teach you the importance of tznias, or it was just here's the dress code, sign on, commit to it, and no explanations? 
the only time they explained anything that had anything to do with sneers to us that I recall was once when they spoke to us about not wearing clear nail polish. But that was it. But they didn't talk about the values of sneers and the importance of sneers. There was nothing along those lines. No, not at all. Okay, so how was it enforced? Was there somebody standing when you walked in with a tape measure measuring the length of the skirts? Or were there teachers who were responsible for enforcing it? Talk about who enforced and how was it enforced? Not nicely. Um, There was a teacher that was standing at the front of the school some days at the main entrance. And she would call girls out if they had skirts or shirts or anything that didn't look exactly like it should to her. Often, though, the girls that were really not dressed the way they should were were just coming late. So then she wasn't there anymore. In addition, there were teachers. I don't know if they were appointed by the school or if they were self-appointed who would sometimes tell girls off publicly in the hallway. That happened to me a few times. I'm not saying I was okay the way I was dressed. I was wearing a skirt that was maybe a little bit shorter than 15 centimeters or six inches under the knee. But I don't think that the way it was done was what I deserved. I can tell you that once I was told off by two teachers at the same time in the hallway, busy hallway during recess and so practically in front of the school. And it was really unpleasant. It did not make me want to wear a longer skirt. It was just like, I felt just horrible afterwards. It wasn't like someone sat me down and explained to me the beauty of SNES and why I should be wearing a longer skirt. It was just being told off publicly. Um, there was a girl who was a Soma and she was told off in front of our whole class over wearing a sweater. It was, it was blue. It was wide stripes of two shades of different navy blue, which was not strictly according to the rules, but I don't know what their financial situation was. She could have just gotten that sweater from hand-me-downs from someone. And I know that it wasn't an easy time for her, probably, as she had just lost her mother. Um, And she was told off in front of the whole class over a detail in the dress code, which I know dress codes are important, but there's a time and place for everything and a way of doing things. I don't think that the way that that was done was okay. Uh And just one one last question for you. Do, Do you know of any girls who became more or less observant because of the dress code and how it was enforced? I can't think of any girls that became more observant. Um, I can think of a few that became less. And I I know as a fact that there are girls that, even though they went to this very right-wing mainstream Basiaco school, they no longer wear skirts that cover their knees. Um, and I don't blame them. Like, Also, another time I was told that Hashem doesn't like me just because my skirt's too short. I believe that even if someone's wearing a skirt that's too short or even pants, which is not according to any sort of Tznias guidelines, Hashem still loves them. He might not like their choices in what they're wearing, but he still loves them because he's still their child. They're still his child, and he's not going to not love them just because of what they're wearing. And that really doesn't make people want to get closer to Hashem being told that he doesn't like them for something that they're doing. Mm -hmm. If I can, just one one more question. If you know there's a lady enforcing you there when you come in, so you come in late, and there are specific teachers or administrators or enforcers around the school, I guess it's a twofold question. What does that do to the environment of the school? And, And do girls like try to avoid, you know, if they know their skirts are too little, what are they, do they have like warning systems up? Where is this administrator? So you have to walk the other way. What, what, what's the, what, what happens inside the school because of this? So I don't know if there were any warning systems up, but definitely 
there was route planning of where where the teachers are more likely to be. So how are we going to walk around there without walking near them? How can we try to slide by without them seeing us? Um, there were definitely times that we were late to class and we were going to be late to class and we were still thinking, how do we run really quickly away that we don't see them so that we don't stop? Yeah, but 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 this these are the girls that are out of uniform and they know they got caught, or these are even the girls that were in uniform and were dressed properly. They just didn't want to deal with these these people. Um, it wasn't always so clear who was in uniform and who wasn't. Sometimes it could look like someone wasn't, but they were just taller, so a skirt looked shorter on them because it wasn't a thing of please wear a skirt halfway between somewhere and somewhere, or wear a skirt that's that long on you. It was rules of that were the same no matter how tall you were or things like that. So I don't know if it was everyone, but I know that for sure. It wasn't like we felt kindly towards those teachers. Um, it was not a pleasant environment, SNES-wise. So, yeah, I don't really know how to answer the question better. And it sounds like it was somewhat subjective enforcement, meaning you didn't necessarily know, am I... Am I in violation today or am I not? It's up to what the teacher decides. So you just decide, even if you think you're in accordance with the dress code, you're going to avoid the situation and do that route planning. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Once I was, once, I don't remember if it was the same how I was told off for a skirt, um, but I was wearing the same skirt a few days later. And because I just hadn't had time to go buy a new one yet, I was really busy in high school, also with things outside of high school. And I was wearing the same skirt and the teacher told me, oh, today your skirt looks a lot better. And I was wearing the exact same skirt. And the same same teacher that had enforced you a few days earlier? Same teacher, same skirt. And and yeah, I think that that's the only complimentary thing I ever got told about anything I was wearing there. And it was not... I I didn't deserve that compliment because it was the same skirt. So, um, yeah. All right, Hannah, we want to thank you for joining us. It's really helpful to hear from the perspective of the student because a lot of the show is talking about what it's like to have the dress codes and uh, to maybe be an educator, not educated, taught the values, not taught the values and proper and improper enforcement methods. And it's good to really hear it from the perspective of a student who has gone through the system. And it really does validate a lot of what we've heard and continue to hear on this show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Rabbi Yisrael Grossberg. Rabbi Grossberg is the menahel of multiple uh, seminaries. One is named Materis Nava in Brooklyn, also Benos Bina Seminary in Brooklyn as well. Both are post-high school seminaries, both mainstream, one a little bit more modern than the other, but he's also the Mashkiach of BCA, which is Benos Chaya Academy. That is a high school for girls who are struggling. They unfortunately don't fit into the system, been thrown out of every institution and this is their last stop. So he wears multiple hats. There are many other uh, activities, institutions, and the like that he is involved in, but uh, that would keep us till the end of the show. So we'll leave it at that. Rabbi Grossberg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Rabbi Grossberg, uh, girls come to you, especially in in BCA, when uh, they're looking for a new school to go to. Uh, Something has happened in the prior school, 
And I'm sure you hear a lot of stories about the frictions and problems that they've had in prior schools, be it an ele- elementary school and the high schools that they've been thrown out of. So why don't you start us off by telling us what are some examples of the more unusual requirements in dress codes that the uh, curls complain about? Right. So, you know, a- approaching this as a male, I come to this a little bit differently in terms of a little bit less, a little bit more detached emotionally to some of these issues. But it, one thing is clear that when you speak to the girls, this is this is a big issue. This is, you know, the word sneeze alone, that word, you know, gets girls um, either talking or shaking. But the, the main thing that I see is that a lot of the girls are coming with examples of dress code issues that are not halachic, but the school's policy and presented, though, as halachic. The example would be certain boots, boots or Uggs. Um, the, um, there might be certain uh, things in their hair that they are, are are not allowed to wear. Things that, again, that are not certain sweatshirts. And to the girl, if it's it's okay. Why am I not allowed to wear it? Now, I just want to be clear. Every school has a right, and it's you know it's their prerogative in terms of what they feel a basi soil should look like and what they feel is appropriate. The issues aren't so much their rules as that they are presented as the same level of halacha as um, how you know the, the length of a skirt or of sleeves, and that's where things get a little bit messy. So what you have is a dress code, and it says A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, and it goes who knows to what number, not what letter, and it's all just laws instead of saying, you know, we have certain things that are piyalacha and explaining to the girls that there are certain things that aren't halacha, maybe not required by minag, but simply uh, a style issue that the seminary school, high school wants to avoid and explaining to the girls as such. Exactly. Okay, got it. So, so you, you, it's you're a great guest to have on the show because you have experience both in mainstream seminaries and also off the track with BCA. So, w- what I'd love to know, I'm very curious about, is is it only in a, a school like BCA that girls are complaining about dress codes, or would you say the same thing applies with the more mainstream seminaries? These are post high school girls. Are they also complaining about the dress codes that they had and the enforcement of dress codes? Or, or is it more the 10%, 5%, 8%, 15% of the girls who struggle in the system? Right. So the, I, what I'm finding, and this is, you know, um, anecdotal evidence, and uh, just to be clear, not, not, all, not my seminary, but just in general, the people that I work with, um, the, across the board, there are students that are struggling with the Tznius rules. However, they may not be struggling with Tznius, meaning that that's something that they, they do. They're not anti-Tznius. They struggle sometimes with the enforcement. They struggle with the presentation. Um, I know one girl told me, it says, every other thing that they do, you, you know, you do poorly on a test, there may be a consequence. You do, you do well on the test, you get complimented. Other things, there's both, the girls tell me that there's never a time really that they're complimented when they are keeping to them. It's always punitive. It's always something they're doing wrong. And it's become an issue across the board from, from school to school where there's such a, a certain sense of negativity that comes into something that with just maybe a couple of tweaks in the presentation and the enforcement, girls will be okay with. You're always going to have those girls that are going to push and have difficulty. And that's, you know, that's also you know, an issue that needs to be dealt with. But I think the, the real issue here is the girls that are doing the right thing, ready to do the right thing, but it just leaves such a bad taste in their mouth in terms of how it's been uh, presented and um, enforced. Uh, so, so would you say, based on it, it seems that dress code, either content or enforcement is a challenge to even uh, the 
could be the best of the growth. It could be that there's a 5%, 10% that it's just a non-issue for them. But it seems that this is more of an, of course, across the board a challenge, at least conceptually, but um, cer- certain ones violate it, right? But it, it seems that's a, a challenge even for the mainstreams. Those who actually violate it, would you say there's a certain personality type that find it more offensive and they flaunt the laws? Or, or uh, you know, wh- where does that come out? What's the basis of, of the girls who just say, I'm not going to adhere whatsoever? So for, again, from what I've seen, um, th- you know, there's, there's a certain personality type that will push back at the rules. And maybe not just only a personality type, but a, a girl in a certain situation, a certain massive within their lives where there's a, somewhat of a rebellion, somewhat of a, um, you know, a lack of conformity that's, you know, that's driving it. And those are the girls who are pushing back. However, you have still those, so many girls and who are following everything exactly. And it looks like everything's okay, but inside they're very unhappy about the, the way the system is set up. And it shows itself sometimes, even let's say, a girl on, on a Sunday where she's not in school and she can dress how she wants because of the fact that they feel so under the gun during those the other days of the week, they may end up for emotional reasons, almost not being as careful on those days because they feel this is the time that they can express their individuality as opposed to during the week. It's, you know, it's legislated. So I would say that you have many, the, the ones that are violating, those are the ones that are struggling and, you know, they're, they're even even to a slight or small extent, there's a certain level of rebellion and you know, lack of conformity. But the other girls, doesn't, the fact that they're doing everything right doesn't mean that, you know, all is well. Uh-huh. So, so if we can um, dig a little deeper, what, what really, what specifically is objectionable to the girls? So if I can divide it up into three buckets. Number one, there are rules. It could be that teenagers don't like rules. Certain people don't like rules. This is an age category that we don't like rules. We don't like to be told what to do. So we could put that as bucket number one. Bucket number two is uh, the content, the specific content. And we talked about is something al or is it not al And maybe it's uh, more challenging for the girls if it's something that's more of a stylistic decision from the uh, from the institution, from the school. So number three, number two would be the content of the of the uh, penal code. And and number three would be the enforcement. Where do you hear from the girls that they find the most challenges of the, of the, cause it's a rule, the content of the rule or the enforcement of the rules? Interesting. So I I, I think really a lot of it comes down to the enforcement. And I'll just say by, by way of explanation, the I've heard more than once that whenever Leilenu, the Zetzara in Klal Yisrael, the girls, you know, will moan under their breath, ah, we're going to get blamed and it's going to be because of our tzniyas. It's like an automatic thing and it happens. That's exactly, that's exactly what happens. How are they supposed to love this if this is something where they're being told, you know, that it, they're never told that Klal Yisrael is flourishing because the girls are dressing tzniyastik. But whenever there's a Zetzara, time after time, and, you know, you, first of all, I mean, that's a, probably for a different podcast, uh, whether or not we can actually come up with explanations and reasons for service that happened in Klal Yisrael. But we assume that, you know, we're, we're going with that. Um, the fact that Sneas is usually the number one issue really leaves a bad taste in their mouth, especially when they go, so one says, the men are off the hook, right? They can they can go to sleep at night knowing that Klal Yisrael is fine in there, but, but the women who didn't dress Sneas, you know, that becomes the issue. And, and the problem with this is, is once that attitude is in place, once they're out of school, and we're telling them we still want them to dress a certain way and that on their own, the, that bad taste lingers. And it shows itself you know, in terms of decisions that are made when they're able to make the decisions um, for themselves. Mm-hmm. When, uh, you just triggered something in, in, my, in my mind when you were talking about uh, 
the enforcement bring to the problem. And it's it's like the, the force, they were forcing them to do this as opposed to So I, I was uh, reading the Chuva, the Sri Deyesh, a famous Chuva on Kolisha, probably the most famous Chuva on Kolisha, if not one of the most famous Chuvas in the world. And he's addressing the organization of Yeshurun in post-World War II, post the Holocaust, France. And they had the approach of uh, being, I don't want to say because it was a youth organization, trying to keep the youth at that time connected to Judaism. And what they did was they had it co-ed. They had boys and girls together. And also there was Kalisha. So the street age was consulted. Is this proper? Do they need to disband? Because apparently they're violating two alachas, having the genders together, albeit on separate tables. And number two, Kolbi Isha Erva, and he says a statement that relates to what you were saying. He says, you know, we can't force Judaism on these kids. We can't force Talacha. We can't force Torah. We can't be bring in, the, in the, the National Guard to enforce things like this. And he says, <laughs> We have only one way to save ourselves, to save these kids, <laughs> to make Judaism loved by them. Ulaharos es noamav yafya. To show them the beauty of Judaism, the benefits of Judaism, that's the only way that we're going to be able to of the youth. And it sounds like very much that uh, we may be going back and uh, making that mistake then from the Tzniah's perspective, if we're not building it as a positive thing, but be- building it as a negative thing and all the negatives and problems and catastrophes and qualities are the result, result of, of Tzniah's, that's obviously not going to leave a, a good taste in, in the girls' mouths. I mean, to be fair, it, it is, there is a balance, meaning that I totally, this is in no way trying to say that schools shouldn't have CS rules and everything should just be, you know, um, you know, candies for doing the right thing. But there's still a balance implies that there's two sides. That's what, that's what we need for that balance. So, you know, the schools have their jobs and they're doing that. They're training our children. Really right. But there has to be that other side as well. Right. So a, a girl is out of dress code. What statement is she making? Is, is she saying... I'm not going to hear, I want to make my own decisions. Is she saying, I want to show outwardly that I want to violate the code? What, what's going on there? Right. So, you know, a lot of times, we talk about, you know, girls, unfortunately, who are struggling, um, it's, it's a kind of an undercover struggle. No one knows if they're using their phone on Shabbos. No one knows, you know, if they're making brachas or, or washing before. But then you have that girl who says, you know, something, I, I, it's time to go public. This is how you go public. There's no, you know, you are the topic of conversation when you come in with something that's off a little bit, even if it's a little bit off. Um, and that's, you know, the circles are looking for that attention. They're looking for, you know, maybe the negative attention or maybe they're trying to make a statement. I mean, if, from speaking to so many girls over the years, there's something about dress. And again, this coming from a male perspective. Where we're pretty much doing black and white every day of the week, and just you know, a different shade of black maybe for Shabbos, but that's where it goes. They're, the way they dress is who they are. It's their individuality. It's telling someone to dress some way. It's not only telling them which clothing to wear, but in a way, it's telling them who to be. And therefore, that pushback sometimes is not only about clothing. It's not only about inches, but it's about you are telling me, you know, you you are closet. You are telling me to define myself a certain way that I may not be comfortable defining myself. It's not an easy thing to do because, yes, sometimes we are telling them to define themselves this way, or at least we're hoping and, and that they'll define themselves this way. But the pushback sometimes is coming and say, no, I want you to know who I am. And you can't deny who I am when I'm dressed like this. It, it sounds like the, the parallel with boys would be taking off the yarmulke. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. And th- th- that example is good because I, I've noticed tzitzis is the undercover. In other words, you can have a, when a boy starts t- takes off the tzitzis, very few people will know about it, maybe at home. That's when he, he's not ready. He's not going public yet. 
And he's, but the yarmulke is a public, is, you know, that is making a statement. Interesting, interesting. So when a girl comes, uh, let's say from BCA, so she's unfortunately been thrown out of other institutions and she's looking for a new high school and she comes to you during the interview. I, I assume you asked, uh, so what happened? You know, what, why are you here? There are obviously issues uh, from where you're coming from, open, open conversation. How many times, how often, what percentage of the time do they mention that they had frictions with dress code? I, you know, I, I can comfortably say 100%, meaning that, you know, literally, um, it's, if it's not the first battle, it's definitely one of the first battles. Um, again, it's, it's a chance. Now, what should a school do? That's, you know, that's debatable. If there's, I know once the school once called me and asked me, I suggested, I said, you know, the, if the Menahela speaks to her, she can offer her whatever she wants. It's not going to make a difference. It's coming from the Menahelas. But if a teacher who she has a close relationship can just sit down with her, take her for a walk, or even take her shopping, which is actually what happened, and help her to buy clothing that's worth, or tell a parent, spend a little bit extra, get her, you know, the, maybe a higher class, sub, but that's Sanua, you can stop it before it becomes a problem. But if you know the first thing right away is uh, you dress like that, you, you know, you, right away considering you off the derech, etc., then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and unfortunately, that's you know usually how it goes. Right, right. So, so let's let's get back to to the issues of the dress code, the content of the dress code, the enforcement of the dress code. Where, where do you see? schools making mistakes in particular with the content and enforcement? Because obviously we want to come out of here having some action steps, hopefully that uh, aids us that the schools can take to heart and uh, hopefully to start implement. Right. So once again, with the Hakdama of understanding the the tough position that schools are in, and I'm not here to be negative about the the wonderful, wonderful, you know, et cetera. But that being said, um, sometimes the girls will say, I'm not, I'm not the person, I'm a skirt, meaning that I could be a great person, but if my skirt isn't okay, you don't notice me. You just notice my skirt. So if instead of saying, oh, wow, she must've made a mistake, you know, the right away, that's what it is. And, and I mean, okay, serious horror stories. There was a girl who was at her graduation, by mistake, she grabbed her sister's skirt and therefore was wearing something that was a little too short on her. She was sent home from her graduation in a, a totally embarrassing um, that now you might say, well, look, she can't wear a short skirt by graduation. That may be. Maybe it's a question, let her stay and have someone run home, get this. Not, don't throw someone out of the auditorium. Don't, you know, the, uh, I'm not saying, again, that, that the school should lower their standards or should accept things, but see the person. Understand the, the human situation over here. If you know that a girl is struggling, understand that this could be the move that pushes her over the edge. Maybe there are other aces. Maybe there are other things. Um, that we can do, but see the person, don't just see the piece of clothing. Right, so let, let's say there's an issue. School sends the kids home. Uh, the school calls the parents. How do t- parents typically take this? Do they work with the school? Do they work with the kid? How, how, what's, how, are, are parents receptive to these issues? How have, have you, how have you seen them react? Right. So, you know, it's, I've, I don't know if there's a typical because every parent really is different, but I could just say, what well, if parents ask me, um, my suggestions are, if we look at it like this, there are kind of three categories. The first category, a kid comes home and says, oh, they sent me home. And the parent is really not holding on that level and doesn't fully understand what the school's doing. They tell her, they laugh it off, send their kid out for pizza and say, oh, you know, those, um, uh, you know, over the top uh, fafrontas, you know, that's why they're doing it. That's terrible because any hope of having this girl learn anything from her teachers, her school, et cetera, is pretty much shot at that point. 
because my own parents think that they're, you know, over the top fafun. On the other hand, if, if the school is perhaps going a little too far and you see your kid hurt and struggling to right away just back the school without some understanding of what your child is going through is potentially harmful to your child. It's, uh, it's not easy. There's a, there's a, like, again, I keep using the word a tightrope walk, but it's that tightrope walk of really understanding your daughter, understanding what she's going through, but at the same time, understanding that schools have rules and that she needs to understand that, you know, the rules are there. They're not arbitrary. Maybe this would be a perfect time to start talking about the explanations, et cetera. But, you know, to, to be able to back the school, but at the same time, to make sure that your daughter understands that you understand her and that you, you know, you, you can be there for her through the pain of, you know, being sent home, et cetera, going through and not just, because the, the third way is that, you know, was how many of us grew up, the Rebbe's always right. The school is always right. Even when they're wrong, they're right. You know, the story of the kid who comes home and he says, oh, my Rebbe patched me for no reason. So his father gives him a second patch. He said, well, what is, what is that for? He said, well, how dare you accuse your Rebbe of patching you for no reason? You deserve a patch. You know, so that, that can be, you know, potentially harmful. His father just doesn't feel heard, doesn't feel understood. Um, it's there, it's shaykh to do both. To let them feel heard, let them feel understood, while at the same time, you know, remaining true to the school that, you know, the policy of the school has. Right. Don't don't magnify the problems, but try to try to, to massage things. Right. Right. So so one final question for you, Rabbi Grossberg. What would you say is the lasting impact of girls from an overly strict either dress code or dress code enforcement? Do we see lasting effects? And we're really talking about not not the girls that uh, dropped out of the system or, or didn't adhere because we know that that was our. Not going to be a good results, but how about for the rest, the other, not the 10% that uh, go with it and don't care. It's no problem with them. They don't even have a machshava that there's a problem, but the other 80% or whatever percentage it is in the middle, is there a negative uh, impact on them or is there a positive impact on them from, from having these dress codes and having them uh, enforced strictly? So I would have to say, this is the most important question we've asked. All the words of question, but this is critical. And the reason is because, you know, the four years in high school is important, but the rest of their lives and as mothers and and being role models is even more important. Revolva, others always talk about sometimes in parenting, we have to play the end game. Revolva does use those words, but you have to play that meaning that sometimes we have to look at the war and not just the battle. And we have to ask ourselves, I may get them to dress that way and I may win that battle, but what is their, their, their attitude towards Sneas afterwards what is their attitude towards their teachers their parents afterwards so it, it's i don't want to use the tightrope word again but it's careful because it doesn't mean that you should just let them do what they want but at the same time you have to be because to answer now to answer the question it plays a tremendous role in how people are later on in life are. and i've heard this from rabbanim all the time they'll have a couple come in and there's one runs i couldn't even look up the way the you know the wife is dressed and i asked her where she went and she went to a, you know a top-notch right-wing school that, you know, clearly she didn't learn to dress this way there, but it becomes, you know, it, it, it's like the child in a candy store. You hold your kid back from candy the second you're out of sight. And we saw this always in dorm and yeshiva. You could tell who wasn't allowed to have candy at home because the second they got to the dorm and they waved goodbye to their parents, they were in that candy store packing it in. As opposed to a child who they had candy at home. If a kid is finally, the teacher's not telling them what to do, the manal's not telling them, they're old enough, their parents aren't telling them what to do. They've been waiting for this, all this pent up, interest in dressing a certain way has been waiting to, you know, to actualize itself. And this is what happens. And we see it. We see it many times 
where, you know, the parents, you'll just hear, just sort of simply, you know, the schools that they went to, they're clearly, they're not dressed in that way, and they'll tell you, they resented it, and this is how, you know, this is how it went. Derechad Archenom, as you said before, this is, we want them to come out with a, a, a beautiful taste in their mouth. Doesn't mean that they have to understand everything, doesn't mean they have to agree with everything, but if they come out solid and understanding, you know, the, the entire way of life and the beauty of the entire way of life and the proper thing to do, that's what success is. Ultimately, that's our, that's our goal. And, and I, would, I would assume based on that, if, if the pair, if the, the, the women who are coming out, they go on to be parents of, uh, are having that negative impact, that uh, negative reaction to the dress codes, what's the impact on their own children, their own girls when they see that in their parents? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I've heard from parents, they'll, they'll call me, let's say, this, about an issue that took place in the school, and they're, they're reacting in this, I don't want to say crazy way, crazy is a strong term, but I said, you know, okay, she dressed a certain way, then Morris sent home a note, maybe next time to fix it. And but the reaction is coming from almost like PTSD. They're, they're, they are right back in the, their Menahelis's office. And, you know, they feel like, a, a, you know, a fifth grader all over again, being told what to do. And that's why, you know, and my child will not go through this, et cetera. But it, 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 there's such an anger that's there, that's built up that uh, I, I have to be honest, there are parents that send their kids to schools that are probably, you know, more loose than what they would simply because I'm not going to let my child have to go through what I went through. And it's a pity because the kids could really gain from being in a better place. Rabbi Grossberg, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure having you. It's been too long. Thank you. Yes, yes. yes. We met Hashem. We're going to continue. Hatzlacha with everything. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Dr. Rifka Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz has been in teaching and administration at Orthodox high schools for approximately 20 years, more than 20 years, and the last 15 of which has been at Modern Orthodox High School. She writes, she lectures widely on contemporary issues, and it is a pleasure to have her. Dr. Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us. Really my pleasure. Thank you. So, Dr. Schwartz, as you know, we are talking about dress code and SNEAS enforcement at schools. And, and before we get going, because I have a lot of questions for you, um, give us just 20 seconds, to, uh, half a minute on your background, because I know it's, it, it spans the spectrum. And we're going to be talking about not only, only modern Orthodox, because that's the world that you're administrating in right now, but also uh, to the yeshivish world. So give us 20 seconds on, on your education and who you are. Okay. I grew up in, I would call it the open-minded end of the yeshivish world in Brooklyn. For those of you who know Brooklyn, New York schools, I went to Benosley at Prospect Park Yeshiva. For those of you who really want to play Jewish geography, my mother, Mrs. Lotha Press, is the principal of Benosley and has worked there for more than 50 years. Um, I went to BJJ in Yerushalayim. Some of you have probably heard of it. I then went to a second year of seminary in Yavna Seminary in Cleveland. I'm not telling you this to establish my educational credentials right now. I'm telling you this to establish that I'm very well familiar with the standards of the Basiako world and call it the mainstream yeshiva. From world. Um, when I started teaching, I taught for a number of years in more Basiakov aligned high schools, obviously old girls high schools. And then at some point I moved over into working in co-educational modern Orthodox settings, which is where I work now. So when I talk about these issues, I have experience enforcing dress code, both in Basiakov schools and in modern Orthodox schools and experience having dress code enforced on me in Basiakov institutions. I guess I'll start with that question then enforced on you. So, so did you ever violate the dress code growing up? And was it your mother, was it your mother that had to enforce it? 
100%, I will tell you the story and you will decide if this makes it into the recording or not. Um, so in high school, we had a uniform. We didn't just have a dress code as a standard in basic high schools. We had a uniform, a white shirt and a pleated skirt. And the rule was that in the winter, you could wear a navy blue turtleneck or a white turtleneck underneath your white blouse. The year that I was a junior or a senior in high school, again, this is for those of you who, knew, who are New Yorkers, you're going to know what I'm talking about. They added to the NYPD uniform, a navy blue turtleneck that had the letters NYPD embroidered on the turtleneck in white. So I was way too cool for school. I actually found a police uniform store. I took the subway to a police uniform store. I bought the NYPD navy blue turtleneck. And the next day that it was cold enough, instead of coming to school in a plain navy blue turtleneck underneath my white Basiaco blouse, I came to school in my navy blue NYPD turtleneck under my white Basiaco blouse. Yes, this is my wild and crazy teenage rebellion. Now, my mother had a very strict principle about like the division and separation of church and state. So at home, she was my mother. And at school, she was the administrator and they didn't cross over. So she knew that that day was going to be a big day for a uniform enforcement push. But she did not tell me when I got dressed and left the house in the morning. And then she walked into my classroom in school and she said, Miss Press, please go to the bathroom and take off that turtleneck and give it to me, which I did. I still own the turtleneck. It is still somewhere here in this apartment with me as a testament to my wayward youth. Now, how did she say it? Just like that, Ms. Press? Yes. Mm -hmm. Any punishment? Any no, the punishment? No, no, the punishment was you had to take it off. Uh-huh. She didn't send you home and uh, call your mother into the office or anything like that. She did not, in fact, pull my mother into the office. That would have been difficult to pull off. Um, but I don't know how my high school handled repeat uniform violators because I wasn't one. I, yeah, that was a one-off kind of thing, change out of it. I don't know what they did with kids who had multiple offenses against the dress code. And Rosh Chodesh, on Rosh Chodesh, we were allowed to not wear the uniform, you're allowed to wear our own clothing. And Rosh Chodesh was a time of enormous scrutiny and definitely heightened tensions between teacher and student about dress code enforcement. There was a legend in my school that they would do fire drills on Rosh Chodesh to get all the girls out of the building, like Kibakaras, Roa, Edro, Mav, Yertsono, Tachas, Shifto, to see every girl as she goes past to see if her dress code was, you know, appropriate and sneeistic and whatever. I'm sure that that's not true. And they didn't specifically do fire drills on Rosh Chodesh. The fact that we as students told that story tells you how we felt and thought about teachers enforcing dress code on us. Interesting. Interesting. So let's start broadly then. Enforcement of dress codes. Would you say this is a global issue across the spectrum? Meaning clearly it's, it's, uh, it was in Prospect Park, but modern Orthodox, Yeshivas, Hasidish. Does everyone, every school, and we'll talk high schools, does everyone deal with this or are there certain areas uh, of, of uh, Orthodoxy that uh, don't have this issue? Every area of orthodoxy that I know has this issue, and I'm going to assume it's generalizable to the areas of orthodoxy, I don't know. I don't know what goes on in the Hasidic schools. I've never been in one. I don't know what's happening in the Hasidic schools. But certainly in the yeshivish schools, talk to any educator in a Yaakov school. She's not going to say to you, oh, yes, dress code, uniform, sneeze. It's totally fine. It's not a problem. What's different is what the lines are and what the fights are. So in some places, you're fighting that your girl's skirt should come to the knee. And in some places, you're fighting that your girl's skirt should cover the knee. And in some places, you're fighting that your girl's skirt should be 10 centimeters below, four inches below the knee, right? So those are different fights. But in every case, wherever you draw the line, the teenagers are going to push back and the educators are going to have to figure out how to navigate that. Uh -huh. So, so w when it comes to a modern Orthodox school, walk us through what does that dress code look like? What are the requirements? What is not required? And... Uh, is it a written document? How much detail does it give? So let's start with the law side of things as okay. opposed to the enforcement of the law. So it is absolutely a written document. I am the person who writes the document in my school and updates it year to year. And as with many rule books or law books, the law kind of gets longer based on the ways that students try to break the law. So that, for example, um, boys dress code requires that they wear 
what I call pants pants. And the dress code says no track pants, no pajama pants, no sweatpants, right? No blue jeans. As the years have gone on and kids have worn different things to school, we add more and more elements to the dress code. So when I say pants, pants, it means, you know, not all of those things, but we actually write all those things out in the dress code explicitly. Um, but, but boys dress code is almost a sideshow, to be honest. Boys dress code is not where the real pain and difficulty and challenge happens. Um, in our school, and again, this would be just incredibly different. Obviously, if you're talking about a, a Haredi boys school where the expectation past a certain age is white shirt and black pants, that's not the world I'm working in. Um, our requirements for boys dress code are yarmulke and tzitzis, and then also pants, pants, a shirt with a collar, not a t-shirt. And that's pretty much the boys dress code. And if somebody, if the boy is in violation, you just tell him and he knows he's violating and weiter, uh, he just has to change. We send them down to the office to get, we have, you know, cheap polo shirts with collars. And the Amalco thing is going to be much more often. Oh, I was running down the stairs. I'm holding it in my hand. Okay, your keep has to be on your head, not in your hand. It's not going to be, you know, I didn't bring one to school. It's just like right now, right this minute, it's not on my head. Um, and he'll put it on his head. And then if I want to, I'll give him bobby pins. And if I want to threaten him, I'll tell him next time it's going to be a glue gun. Um, and thumbtacks. I'm sorry? Thumbtacks. I haven't threatened that yet, although maybe that's where you go after the glue gun. But but it's not emotional and sensitive and fraught. I'm not saying anything anyone doesn't know. That enforcing dress code on a young woman is emotional and sensitive and fraught and personal and hurtful. I know you want to know about girls' dress code, and I'll get back there in a minute, in a way that enforcing dress code on boys is not. I, by now in the arc of my life, have spent enough time talking to women in their 20s and beyond not talking about high school students, long past high school students who speak with pain or anger or resentment or all of the above about the teacher who told me my socks were too short. And I think two things about those interactions. One thing I think, and I do think this is, okay, honey, that's how you felt when you were 15. Maybe you could see it now with an adult perspective and you could realize you actually chose to wear socks to school that violated the dress code. And the adult was given the responsibility to enforce the dress code. And maybe you could reframe from your 15-year-old pain to an adult understanding of what's going on here. So I do think that in half my head, I have a split screen in my head because you know half of it is the administrator's head. But the other half of it, I do think, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? If our women who are 25 and 35 and 45 are still remembering sadly and angrily, I'm not talking about women who, who left from Kite, who left the community. I'm talking about women who are in the community and are still carrying that with them. And then like the question of, is what we're doing working and what could work better and how could we make it work better is an important question. Getting back to Monrothodox dress code for girls, um, what we tell our girls is knee-length skirts. They can wear short sleeves, but not cap sleeves. If you want me to elaborate on what that distinction is, I can. And that their shirts cannot be excessively low cut. Their skirts cannot have slits in the front of them. Those are the, those are the um, elements of our school's dress code. Dress code might not be identical in other modern Orthodox schools, but it would roughly follow the same contours. For example, girls are allowed to wear short-sleeved shirts. Now, short sleeves means above the above elbow. the elbow. Cap sleeve means those tiny little sleeves that just cover the shoulder. And those sleeves we do not allow, but we do allow above the elbow sleeves. Yes. Okay. So, above, and when it comes to the knees, does it get into the detail of the knees have to be covered when seated or it doesn't get into that detail? It doesn't get into the detail because realistically, we are not enforcing covering the knees. Okay. Even, so if, the dress, even if the dress code says that, that's not what we're right. getting. So is the, the point of the dress code doesn't seem to be to be halachically adherent because most postkim would say that the knees have to be covered and the elbows have to be covered or it's not all postkim. So it, it's try, to try to get close to the halacha, but it's kind of uh, acknowledging that it's a tzibor that uh, maybe exer shein a tzibor yachol amodbo. Well, there, you know, there are different elements and I think it's important to tease out. I'm not sure this is the direction we want to take the conversation in right now, but there are 
portions of the broad Orthodox community, okay, that take very different positions on what the halachos of Tzniyas require, then certainly is normative in the world in which I grew up. Okay, so that, for example, there's a certain kind of halachically serious, um, but very modern Orthodox woman that you will see who covers her hair and wears pants. That is a that is a, a type, a combination that I'm very familiar with, that I know among many women in the community in which I work. Okay, because the post skim that they are talking to are saying pants are only a problem if they're this and not, but not if they're that. And that it can be, but that Kisoi Rosh is a halach requirement for women, which is my way of saying that I, I am not granting the, the premise that all posts can agree, for example, about the question of short sleeves and whatever it is. Um, I just, I, I, you know, maybe this is too personal or revealing, but I think it's relevant to the conversation. I dress basically according to the standards of the community in which I was raised, um, which is an interesting thing and, and, and you know, makes me um, in certain ways stand out. Uh, in the community in which I live and work now. I dress basically according to the standards of the community in which I was raised. Um, but I don't want to start by granting that there is no possible halach justification for these practices. They are based on, obviously, conversations with different postgim, different halach interpretations in a different part of the Orthodox community than probably most of your listeners are coming from. Having said that, it is also 100% true that we do not frame our dress code as a halachic code. This is not, this defines what halacha requires of you. And that actually, we've, we've thought about this as an administration. It gets us into a little bit of a, of a challenging place of exactly how are we talking about it and exactly how are we describing it and framing it. It's about sneas, it's about values, it's about a certain kind of respect and dignity, but we're not exactly quite saying this is what the bright line law is. I think some of you might find this an unconvincing comparison, but I think there is an analogy to something that goes on much more in the Haredi yeshivish world that I grew up in, where also there are things that are enforced, not because it's a halachic requirement or not, but out of a broader sense of dignity, kavod, modesty. Sometimes people write that up as though it's halacha, but it's honestly, okay, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. It's a little hard to make a super convincing halacha case that if your earring is this big in diameter, it's a sneeze issue, but if it's that big in diameter, it's not, it's like, I'm not really, you know, I remember at one point, one of the schools I worked in back when I was working in a basic of high school. Okay. So for those of you who are my age or, you know, maybe a little younger, remember when Michal Negrin earrings from Israel were a giant craze. Michal Negrin was an Israeli jewelry designer who made these jeweled flower earrings. And, and for a hot minute in 2005 or something, they were all the rage. And Michal Negrin earrings often were made kind of dangerous. They hung off the, the ear. And the school I worked in then had a rule, no dangling earrings. The girls had to wear earrings that, you know, were just close to the earlobe. And so the, the principal came to ask me to enforce the no dangling earrings rule as, of course, I'm wearing dangling earrings. So, okay, I'll stop wearing dangling earrings when I go to school from now on. And we'll tell the girls that we made a giant fight with the girls that they couldn't wear Michal Negrin earrings, these delicate little flower earrings. And like, again, the question, so that's about a sensitivity. It's about a sensitivity that an adult from girl doesn't have flashy things hanging off her ear. And I hear that you're not exactly quite arguing that it's halacha either. And the question about a sensitivity is, do we get girls to a sensitivity by making it a rule and enforcing it? Is there, is that, does that, does that work? Again, is there Yetzas Charo Behefseido? I felt that in that high school that I was working in at the time. We went to the mat against these Michal Negrin earrings that every single girl in the school was wearing. It seemed like maybe that wasn't the right as we once brought someone into my high school for professional development, whatever she was working with us on, on professional development wasn't successful, but I learned a great phrase from her. So maybe it's worth whatever money we paid her as a consultant to learn the phrase. She was from the South. So she said in a much better accent, I'm going to do a very bad job of butchering the accent. She would, she would say, is that the hill you want to die on? 
So is that the hill you want to die on? Is that the hill you want to die on? Is that, the, is that the fight you want to fight? Is that where you want to cash in all your chips with the girls? And I'm not even talking about, you know, sneeze and dress code in general is super hard. And if you want to go to the mat on that, you're going to be cashing in chips plenty to maintain halachic bright lines. But are dangly flower earrings the hill you want to die on? Now, some of our schools and some parts of our community say yes. Some people listening to this are going to say Rivka's totally wrong. She's actually inappropriate because she's speaking out against standards in the community and the standards in the community are dangle earrings are totally wrong. But I think there are very few people, certainly, again, I'm not talking about in the, the communities I don't know, but in the community that I grew up in. And again, the, well, I don't know what to call it, you know, left or wing based alcohol, I'm not sure what to call it. They wouldn't say that Michal Negrin earrings is a halachic issue. They would say it's an issue of sensitivity and sneeze and refinement and edelkite and standards. And then the question of, do we, do we best convey that, you know, by, by, fighting with the kids? Does that get us to where we want to go? And what does it cost us on the way? I think those are those are important questions to think about. This got us way off topic from your question. That, that, that really does need to be analyzed in all the schools throughout. So so when it comes to, to the schools that you're familiar with right now that you're working in, what would you say are the most typical, common violations when you come in and you say, uh, okay, I've seen this every day? Short skirts. Short, Short skirts. Short skirts. We have, we bought for, for the school office, maybe we have 50 floor length, you know, maxi skirts, and we send the girls to change. So here's the thing that happens. And again, I talked about this earlier. A girl chooses to come to school in a skirt that's too short. She knows she's wearing a skirt that's too short. It's not a big secret. She knows what the dress code is. When I ask her to change, she feels hurt. She feels shamed. She feels called out. She feels put down. And it doesn't matter that I say, but, but take responsibility. You made a choice. That's how she feels. She feels terrible the rest of the day walking through school in the long skirt. She feels like that's, you know, announcing to everybody. They call it getting skirted. That's announcing to everybody she got skirted. And I have to say that, well, tell me if you want to talk about philosophy of enforcement, because my philosophy of enforcement has evolved a lot over the years. And I'm not sure maybe now it's, um, I'm not sure where it is right now, actually. Um, but the question of, do we say to the girl, tough, you made a choice. So you're embarrassed by the results of the choice, but that's your choice. So get over it, honey, which I think functionally is how many of our schools deal with enforcing dress code. So that's certainly an approach. And again, as we said, the girls walk away feeling the way they feel, or do we think that at some point, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it's still not working. We have to figure out what a different thing might be. I think it's an interesting question, but our number one dress code violation would be short skirts. It seems to be somebody knows they're coming in and they're violating a dress code. There's a law and you violated it. You're not supposed to speed and you got caught by a policeman and you got a ticket. You're not supposed to, in certain places, uh, jaywalk and uh, you get a ticket for jaywalking. You know, you violated the law. You're not supposed to burglarize places. You're not supposed to steal. You violated the law. And I, I don't know why somebody would get offended. That, that I mean, I guess nowadays things have changed. You get offended, you shoplift in a store and, and uh, you're not allowed to get put into jail for such a thing. Uh, but but uh, when we have a normal penal code and normal enforcement and normal society, it, it would seem that the criminal, and uh, I'm using that in, in, in the, when we're talking about a criminal offense, would say, you know, I got busted, I took a risk, and that happened. Why, why wouldn't that be the same psychology when it comes to a student? And we're talking about girls being a more sensitive issue. I, I, I gambled and, and I lost. 
So you have just given me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about on this topic. So thank you very much. I'm now going to talk at some length about the time that I actually spent some time talking to a top ranked American criminologist to think about enforcing our dress code. But before I talk about that, I will just say that as a side note, um, I probably don't agree with what you're alluding to about criminal legal system reforms in San Francisco and other places. We can park that topic. If you ever want to bring me on to talk about the American criminal justice system, we could do that too. So let's talk about this. It's actually Actually, the, the English anniversary of his death was yesterday. His yard site is Shiva Asarbatamas. And I think about this professor every Shiva Asarbatamas. His, his name was Dr. Mark Kleiman, obviously, yes, Jewish. And Mark Kleiman was a criminologist at UCLA. And here's what he studied. He studied, you have prisoners who then are released on parole. After a certain amount of time in prison, they let you out. And you're, but you're still under the supervision of the criminal legal system. You're not a free person. It's like a step down. And at that point, you're supposed to keep your nose clean, fly straight, not take drugs, be an upstanding citizen. And if you don't, your parole can be revoked and you get sent back to prison. And what Professor Kleiman's research was about is how do you get people to actually do what they're supposed to do and not get sent back to prison? Because the goal is not to send them back to prison. The goal is to get them to follow the rules. So already you can maybe understand why, even though he's talking about criminals who are addicted to drugs, why as I read this, I said, oh, actually, maybe that has something to say to me. How do you get people to follow the rules? And here's what he found. And I find this to be an enormously compelling episode. I'm going to tell it to you. And then I'm going to tell you why I'm not sure anymore that I want to enforce it the way I probably did seven or 10 years ago when I first learned. He says, here's the problem. You raised speed. If there was some camera set up, which in some places there is, and every single time I drove too fast down the street, there's actually a speed camera like this right near the high school I work in. And every single time you drive too fast down the street, it takes a picture of your license plate, and you get a ticket. Guess what? You stop speeding right away because the punishment is swift and certain. Certain, 100%. Take it to the bank. You drive too fast, the camera doesn't care, you're getting a ticket. The way it usually works with speeding is that a police officer pulls you over one time out of 100, whatever the number is, right? I made up that data point, but it's not every time you speed. One time out of how many times the officer pulls you over. And then what do you say? Please, officer, I was just, I was visiting my grandmother and I didn't realize that my, blah, 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 blah. And if you get the ticket, what do you say? Do you say, I made a bad choice and I got caught just as you raised with the girl who gets skirted? No, you say, the policeman had it in for me. The policeman had to make a quote at the end of the month. The policeman's probably an anti-Semite and he saw my yarmulke and he decided to give me a ticket, right? It's his fault. Why? Because when there's judgment or discretion involved, it's not certain. Maybe yeah, maybe no, it will happen. It won't happen. Then I don't see the locus of control as being in me and my actions. It's not up to me if I get the consequence. It's up to the police officer if I get the consequence. Okay. Where Kleiman saw this research is, remember the, the parolees? So most of the time, how did it work? The parolee takes drugs for the first time. He's not allowed to take drugs on parole. And he gets brought back to the judge. And the judge says, if you do this again, Shmeryl, I'm sending you back to prison. And then he takes drugs again. And he gets brought before the judge again. And the judge says, if you do this again, Shmeryl, I'm sending you back to prison. Nine times this happens. And on the 10th time, the judge says, that's it. You're going back to prison for 10 years. Does Shmeryl say, oh, I, I probably shouldn't have taken drugs, not the 10th time, not the first nine times? Shmeryl says, this judge is a meanie who hates me. And so what Kleiman advocated for, and they tried it, this has been tested in the field and it works, is a system of what they call swift, certain, and fair punishment. Meaning it's going to come right away. You know it's coming, but it's not back to prison for 10 years. And that is every single time you fail a drug test, you go back to prison for three days. But it doesn't no matter what. Discretion. There's no discretion. There's no discretion. No judgment. No chance you're getting out. It doesn't matter what's happening in those three days. Your granddaughter's wedding, your son's college graduation. I don't care. You fail a drug test, you're in prison for three days. And so what do you learn? You learn, ain't that the Ella B. 
the discretion, not sorry, not the discretion, the control, the locus of control sits with me. If I don't want to go back to prison for three days, I have to not take drugs. And the amazing thing they found in this research is that even prisoners who were addicted to substances that we think of as enormously hard to break out of the dependence on, okay? Hard drugs that it's really hard to not take if you're physically dependent on in this system had a much better time of resisting. So I think about Mark Kleiman, um, uh, he, he died untimely young. Oh, so wait, here's, here's another fun part of the story. So then at some point, I, I followed his blog. I read his blog. I read things he wrote online. And at some point he writes on his blog, he's leaving UCLA. He's getting a job at NYU in an, a university in New York City. Okay, so I wasn't flying to California to talk to him, but now he's going to be in New York. So I send him an email. Dear Professor Kleiman, I am not a stalker. I have been reading your work for a long time and trying to bring your work into high school. Would you be willing to meet with me? My mother taught me this lesson a long time ago. The worst thing they could do is say no. So what's going to happen? I'll say no, doesn't it go away? Okay, fine. Why did I waste an email? He said yes. So I went to meet with him one day. The summer was probably about seven, seven eight years ago. Um, downtown Manhattan to talk to him about some of these issues. I've got a lot of fascinating insight from that conversation, but we're going to pause that for the moment instead to talk about philosophy and enforcement. So there was a long time where I said, if we did the Mark Kleiman approach, swift, certain, and mild, that would work. Every single woman who teaches in the school would be told every single girl whose skirt is too short immediately gets sent to the office to change. No, can I just fix it? No, can I just pull it down? No, I'm sorry for that girl. She's having a rough day, so I'll give her a pass. And I'm sorry for that girl because I know her parents are going through something, so I'll give her a pass. And I don't want to talk to that girl because we have a good relationship and I'm worried about ruining it, so I'll give her a pass because that's what happens. And then it's all discretion. And then in my school, it just becomes the name of the game is just avoid Dr. Schwartz. If you don't meet me in the halls, you're probably home free. I mean, there are one or two other women and the administration. There are two other women on the administration who enforce dress code. And basically, that's it. If you avoid us in the halls, you're home free, right? So then it's all about not the locus of controls with me and my skirt. The locus of controls is if I meet that woman in the halls and otherwise I'm good. So I used to think that if we would get every single woman in the school to do dress code this way, in that approach, absolutely universal, no exception, swift, certain, mild, we would get compliance. I still think that. I still think if we did that, we would get compliance. We have never been able to do that because for all the reasons I listed, so many of our teachers are so uncomfortable or I'm only going to enforce dress code on kids I don't teach. I can't do it on kids I do teach. It'll damage my relationship. Or I can only do it on kids I do teach where I already have it on a, in a relationship. I can't do it on kids I don't teach or I don't know them well. It's impossible to do. And three, three administrators, three women administrators in a school of 600 and some odd kids, so 300 and some odd girls right? So we're, we're emptying uh, the ocean with a teaspoon so the girls could just take their chances. So I used to think that if we followed Mark Kleiman's approach and swift certain mild, it would work to get compliance. I still think it would work to get compliance. I'm less convinced now that that's what we want to do. Because I talk to these women who are 25 and 30 and 35 and you get compliance in high school. And I don't know to what extent it works to inculcate the values in the long term. And I'm not sure what the costs of getting that compliance are. Because you say inculcate the values of trying to dress properly, which is a longer process. So that's a longer process and you need results immediately. The values and also the sense of, of yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you where I get this from. Okay. Look, here's a common phenomenon in the modern Orthodox world. It might, you know, probably occurs in the Yeshiva world also, but it's a little bit less obvious. Our, our girls go through years of, of uh, modern Orthodox education and our high schools and they look however they look and we fight with them about dress code all the time. And then they go to a year of seminary in Eretz Israel. It's also very common in our world that, that girls spend a year in Israel after high school, even though they're going to very different institutions than the one I went to. They've never heard of BJJ. They don't know what it is. They go to a whole bunch of different madrashiot wherever they go. And, um, and then we see a lot of them come back and they're wearing significantly longer skirts. What happened in that year in that midrashah that has her coming back wearing significantly longer skirts? Did somebody sit down with her with the halachos of tzniyas and parse out, shok bi'isha erevan, what's a shok, what does it mean shok? That's not what happened. That's not what happened. She came to identify with her teachers. 
She came to identify with a set of values or a community that they represent. She herself chose to now identify with those communities and those values. And so she's now dressing in a way that's aligned with those communities and those values. Does that make sense? I think the dress is the is not the thing that leads. It's the thing that follows a sense of identification and connection and all kinds of other things. Yeah. You sign on for the program. So you dress like the way people signed on for the program dress, if that makes sense to you. It's not focusing on the technicalities. It's just on the concept and your association and uh, being a dignified individual when uh, you see you with a community you want to associate with. Yeah, I don't even think it's being a dignified individual. I don't really think they, it's not just, it's not the halachos of Shokti Yishar, but I don't even think it's an interpretation of Kol Kudabas Melech Panima either. It's, it's a community I want to be part of and associate with, and I dress a certain way to connect to a certain community. Um, and be part of a certain community. And so what we are thinking about institutionally, like in my own high school right now, we're working on right now, is what if we shifted the focus from this endless like enforcement and whack-a-mole and catching and like that? And if we instead thought about how would we make the kids feel more connected and more bought in and more wanting to represent a certain set of values and commitments, and dress code doesn't lead that, it follows that. There are, by the way, some Beis Yaakov educators who do this enormously successfully. I have seen it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to name anybody because, first of all, I don't know that the woman involved wants to be named. Um, but in one particular school that I'm thinking of in Lakewood that I have nieces who attend where there is so much um, education that's done, not around technical rules and enforcement, but around this kind of, of conveying a sense of, of bought inness, value and everything else. Um, and I'm not telling you that it's 100% perfect in her school. If I spoke to this school principal, again, I know of her work only indirectly through my sister and through my nieces who go to her school. If I spoke to this woman directly, she would probably also tell me she struggles to dress code in the way she does. She does, but I see a different kind of education. Somebody reminded me, Rebson Chaya Uzban, the, the, the founder, principal, head of, uh, of Yavna Seminary was Nifter last year. And in the discussion about her life and her teaching and her modeling for us, one of the other former Talmudos of Yavna who were talking about it reminded me that Rebson Uzban never spoke to us about Sneas. It's like not a thing she ever talked about. She, she represented a world, right? She was European yeshivish malchus, right? She's daughter of the Tells Rosh Yeshiva. She's married to somebody who's now one of the Rosh Yeshiva of Tells. She grew up in the home of the, of the Rav and Rosh Yeshiva of Tells. She, she, I mean, she, right? That's who she was. Everything about how she dressed and how she looked and how she carried herself conveyed those messages. It wasn't about, let me tell you. I will say, though, I want to say in the interest of, of honesty, it's not the only approach, and I'm not pretending it's the only approach. It might be, as you said, the only approach that works for the girls of our generation. Right, let me, let me make sure I understand what that, that school in Lakewood is doing and what you're considering doing at your school is turning over, uh, taking a step back from enforcement and telling the kids, the, the students, we, you know, we're working on values and we're going to empower you and trust you to really enforce yourselves. Is that the concept? So first, let me say about the school in Lakewood, I want to be very clear again. I don't know direct. I've heard from my sister and seen materials she's given my niece, but I'm talking secondhand. I don't I'm not assuming she doesn't also enforce. I'm sure she also enforces. But yes, there is an enormous amount about conveying values as a positive thing to feel connected to and bought into, not just a enforcement. Again, Mark Kleiman's research has totally convinced me that if you want to run an enforcement regime, this is the way that it will work. What we are stepping back from now is asked, and stepping back from 
And asking ourselves is, do we want to run an enforcement regime? And yes, in the high school that I'm in, I don't know when you're going to broadcast this. Luckily, I don't think too many of my SAR high school students listen to this. They don't know this yet. We haven't shared this with the, with the parents or with the students or anyone in the school community. But as an administration sitting this summer, we're recording this in July, as an administration sitting this summer, discussing what the issues are and how we approach them. We are considering starting the school year next year by, by gathering the kids and specifically gathering the girls and talking to their parents and saying, we want to try to do something different. We want to stop the enforcement and move to a values conversation and see if we can get results that we can live with. Because there is a truth. I want to say one more thing. There is a truth. We can't just say, leave it be. And I hope they'll get there by the time they're 18 or 28 or 38. Because what things would look like along the way, I, I would not be comfortable with. And to a different set of standards, but still in base Yaakov high schools, what things would look like with no articulation of expectations or standards or anything else, just they'll get there when they get there. And we don't want to push them too hard. We don't want would also no the, the adult would not be comfortable with. And also that wouldn't be chinuch. Just do whatever you want. And I hope to grow into it. It's not chinuch. Right. But what we are trying to do is, is maybe shift into a different mode. Yeah, it, may, it may be interesting to run a pilot in the school with specific classes. And, and that would put pressure on those classes because everyone's looking at them. And it would also probably inspire the other classes wanting to be like that class. So it, it may be interesting to start with the eighth grade, the seventh grade, whatever. However, you know, we're talking high school. So the 11th grade, 12, one class and run You guys are empowered and we're going to try it with you and see how it works. And they're not going to want to fail, hopefully. So we actually thought about it as a pilot, but in terms of a couple of September, we said, let's try September, October running this way without sending kids to change, without that kind of more heavy handed enforcement. And let's see if that gives us the kinds of results that we would like to see. Again, I, you are getting breaking news hot off the press. There's nobody in the SAR community besides the administration who knows this, but um, you and your listeners are being brought into my circle of confidence. Well, all 25,000 listeners. Okay. So, <laughs> but, but I will tell you, I, I spoke with a, a principal here in Israel. He ran the biggest upana um, in Israel for 40 years. And this is what he did for honesty in taking tests that uh, they instituted values-based teaching the uh, students that uh, the importance, and it was, it was over time. And they said, we're not enforcing, we're not even having proctors in the classes. Cheating stopped, except there was an event that one girl cheated at one point and the whole class got on her case because they said, you can't be cheating. So he did exactly this for cheating and it was incredibly successful. So I have to say, I'm not Pollyannish. I'm not overly optimistic. The pushes against adhering to dress code standards are very strong. They are societal pushes. They are internal pushes in the turbulent years, teenage years for, for a girl when she's kind of growing into being a young woman, figuring out how she wants to look and how she wants to present herself to the world. There's a lot at stake for young women and feeling like they look good and like they can feel good about themselves and how they achieve that. Um, I, I can tell you a lesson I learned from a student of mine who absolutely did not follow the dress code and gave me very strong muscle. And I really appreciated it. Um, so I can tell you about that in a minute. Um, but there's a lot at stake here for the girls. So I'm not naive that if we stop with the, with the, you know, go change your skirt and we send an email home. And after the third time you get XYZ punishment enforcement, that it's all going to be perfect. But here's what I know. It's not perfect now. It's very far from perfect now. And the one thing I think that would get it to be perfect, we aren't doing anyway, 
So a little bit now, it feels like we kind of got ourselves the worst of both worlds going on. Not that we have the girls always looking like what we want them to look like and creating this kind of, of alienation or anger or oppositional thing, which directly works against a sense of connecting to us, connecting to our values, buying into the message we're selling. So I don't, you know, my goal, my, if my standard is not perfection, if my standard is better than we got right now, that might be an easier standard to achieve. All right. Well, Dr. Dr. Schwartz, I, I, I want to thank you for joining us, but I want to invite you to come back in a few months and tell us how the pilot goes. Because uh, if, if this works for your school, obviously, it would be interesting to roll it out in other places as well. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. I still didn't get to tell you the story about that student who gave me a sharp muster, but maybe oh, we'll please. leave that for when I come back. You know, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Go ahead. This is a story about respecting our students as, as choice makers, even when they're making choices we don't like. So we do school Shabbatonim. Um, we spend Shabbos together with the students. And we talked to the girls about dress code before the Shabbaton. And then a young woman wore a, um, a dress on Shabbaton. It was wildly inappropriate. Totally not consistent with school standards. The back was like very low cut. So I called her. It's as bad as it is to ask a young woman to change in school, as painful as it is. I'm just telling you this as an educator. As much as it gets them upset, when you ask a girl to change on a Shabbaton, it's 100 times worse. Because for the Shabbaton, she picked a dress that she thinks she looked beautiful in for the, for the grade to see. And it's, you know, girls picking what they're going to wear on the Shabbaton. Anyone who's taught girls in high school to go on Shabbaton know this is a whole thing. Okay. She picked that dress to wear and she thinks she looks beautiful in it. And I have to send her to change. It causes, I mean, those are the worst interactions that I have to send a girl to change in a Shabbaton. And in a very misguided attempt to defuse a tense and painful interaction, I tried to make a joke at, out of it. And I said, Miss so-and-so, it looks like something happened to the back of your dress. Like the back is missing. Go uh, change your dress. You're wincing at me. You think that was a terrible thing to do as an educator. Here is a true uh, confessions. We educators don't always, you know, we're not always doing our best things, having our best moments, being our best selves 100% of the time over 60 years of career. So that wasn't one of my better moments. She, I would even say lashed back at me. And she said, you could tell me to change my dress, but I chose this dress. I picked this dress out. I bought this dress because I wanted this dress. Don't make some joke about how the back is missing. This is the dress that I chose to wear. And I took that very seriously. Not that it was okay. And not that she didn't have to change. It wasn't okay. And she did have to change, but that I wasn't actually interacting with her as though I acknowledged that she made a choice that I didn't want her to make. And I was pushing her to do something different. I was acting like, I don't know, it was something that just happened. And she was saying, treat me like somebody who makes choices. And then if you don't like the choices I made, you could deal with it, but treat me like somebody who makes choices. So in the balance, there's a balance here, right? Because right now the school has to look like a certain something. Right now, my girls need to see around them other girls dressing to create a kind of environment in which we promote a certain standard. Right now, I can't just say all bets are off, everybody do whatever you want. But also I am looking forward and I am saying what is going to make my girls feel bought in and invested and connected for the long term. And increasingly, I think that the thing that might be the most successful right now, which is like total blanket enforcement of everything all the time, which will get total compliance right now, is not working towards my long term goals. And working towards my long term goals maybe needs means that I need to adjust or think differently about what I'm trying to do right now. Right. Very good. Well, we, we look forward to having the update in the future. Thank you Wonderful. so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Really my pleasure. So last week, our first riddle was that by Mila, Yamal, even though there's a suffix, that the child will die. Like Rashi says, Zimnin Demayas, Halacha Ragnu Kalayim. You don't go Basarai, you go Basarai, and you're not, you don't worry about the Zimnin Demayas. Most children don't die. Well, most children, therefore, mal. So we ask by Shabbos, Nafla, Lama Poilas, if there's a one in a thousand cent 
chance that the guy is going to die in Mechal Shabbos. Why? Because Bechayshishin Lamiyat. So we asked, Chayshishin Lamiyat, you see by Mila, which is Sakhanas of Fashish, you ain't Chayshishin Lamiyat, but you go by Sarayv, which way is it? So here's the first Teretz. So it could be that Mila, for Mila, he's the Aro. For some Tamadinim, find that someone with adequate Mila is not a full-fledged Jid. So over there, perhaps Mila, the thing of the Chaybem went wild, even though we find that we're for Mechalim, Shabbos, and even for Tinek, that's because he will become a, a Mahal. But someone who, to, to make them with a, a Mahal, perhaps that would not be the same, under the same dinim as the rest of the Torah. So he's saying he's not a Yisrael Gomer before Mewa, and that's why you're not Chayish Lamiyat. This is L'chai Rapella. You don't see Lagabi any halachim pikuach nefesh that you're not machal Shabbos for a tinnik before his meal. If somebody would call up Hatzalah and they say, there's a newborn baby here, he says, running a fever, Hatzalah's on the way. Where, what else do you see? You see a tinnik who's ben yoimai, patas from Yibam, he has a zin of Yisrael. You see uh, a tinnik who's ben yoimai, the Raman Paskins, could eat truma. So you see, we don't see anywhere that a tinnik ben yoimai should have a din of less than a Yisrael gomer. Legabe uh, halachis, so therefore I, it's it's hard to accept this this svara, even though it's an interesting svara. Now here's another. We got a bunch of these. Shash for brismila is very small. Uh, it's so 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 minimal that an uh, So we would have in the car that that a mitzvah is doicha a stekanu choyka. So you're saying the Sakana Mila is Pachas than one in a thousand, and it's a Miyachani Matsay. I mean, what's the Vashin of the Gemara? The Gemara says on the Pasikatilim, Oilecha Hiragnu Kalayim, it's asking Rachman from the Rabbinishwalam, Nechshavnu Kitsoin Tifcha, we're considered like cattle to the slaughter. That's what we do for you. I would say that something that happens less than one in a thousand, it's really hard to make that expression. So Rashi says Zimnan is much more more than Zimnan Demayas. In fact, the Chsam Saifa, who brings this Gemara, says, interesting, he says, you know, usually it's, it's, it is less than one in a thousand. I thought he, it must be because the mitzvah is Megino Matzli, but he's Alpi Derech Ateva, Avada Latmo Adai. So to say that less than we die, it's one in 10,000, and that's called a Lechai Ragnu, I find that to be a Eifin Dachak. Now, here is a, another written, there's a written tarot I'll see over, that's, uh, that's what Tom Tachem wrote. Mila is a mitzvah gedoyle kolkach, that you want to be machnes yourself into a safik. It's like a super mitzvah, and even in a safik you have to do it. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you honest, maybe you could find me, you don't see any din in whole poiskim, that there's an afgimina between Mila and Shar Mitzvahs, between Shabbos, uh, Shabbos is certainly Shakal Kala Tarakula, Lagabi Vachai There is no drusha, there's a difference in Vachai between Mila and any of the other Mitzvahs. So it's, I guess it's, I would tell the, the, the Talmud Chacham who answered this question, The next terrace we got written, we got us also from a few people, it's Darka Shalayla Mila. And something that's Mutav, if Darka Shalayla, you're allowed to be machnas yourself in Sakana. In other words, where do you see this, this idea? A person is allowed to take a boat. This is in the olden times, you know. The Santa, the Pinto, and the Santa Maria, I was on them once. I don't remember. They're mock-ups. These are these little tiny boats. I mean, when these, there were storms, these big storms, a lot of these boats did not make it. The Ramam's brother died in a boat that capsized in the storm in the Mediterranean. They didn't have, you know, the uh, 200 foot, 300 foot, 500 foot uh, with, with all their electric gear, etc. 
So uh, why do you why are you allowed to do all that stuff? Because it's darkish shalolim. So this guy tying as you see the same thing. Once it becomes established darkish shalolim, you're allowed to do it. However, the problem we fakir. How did it become darkish shalolim? Who was Mechadish Mila? Klal Yisrael brought Mila to the world. Well, before it was Nasa, Darka Shalaylam, they should have said, wait, stop! <laughs> it's, it's a Sakana. Don't let it become Darka Shalaylam. talks about this question. Someone asked him the question, and he says, because we need a Klal, it's called a Schazik. Basically, his solution is that Ein Indian, in this case over here, it's not. Uh, this is not time. I'm the Indian. The I'm holding the Yichnevish Nacharov. Who's on high? It is Chazik or Kapuna. Meitel Lefanaimi. But there we have the Meit Lefanaimi. We have the Yidden and the Goyim, and that's when the Gemur is talking about: Do we still it in the Chazuk or not? We don't have any Chazuk. We don't have any established numbers in front of us. Then we are going to go regularly after Rav, and that's why in this case by Bris we go after Rav, and we are going to be Maldikid, although perhaps you can say maybe it will be a Sakuna, we're not going to... So what is the Sam Saifa saying? The Sam Saifa is saying, by Nafla Alav Mapoilas, the Chazik Yisura, it's like you see a car crash, you know somebody's really, could be dead there. Boom! You see a, a wall fall down, a building collapse, Champlain Towers, right? It says Chazik Yisura. And over there, you don't go baser right? you go baser meat. Because that's a mile of his chazaki sura, but by milat, he says there's no chazaki sura. Over there, you don't go after meat. You don't see the accident. So over there, we're not chayshish that maybe, you know, something. So the hasaga and the chsam saifa is, and I see that uh, Avni Nezer, etc., were masig already, but I, I was machabin here, is that Lamaisa, we don't, we don't hold like the chsam saifa la halacha. What's the proof? I mean, Somebody calls up at Salah, they said, you know, my, my, my kid uh, fell down and I think he broke his foot. They come running. I mean, you know, he broke a toe, they come running. They don't say, is, is it, is, is it a, did, a, did a wall fall down on him? Additionally, what do you see? See, from the Shulchan Aruch doesn't seem to go like the Sam Seifer. Shulchan Aruch says that any makas chalal, makas chalal means an internal pain that you can't see from the outside of the body, a bad stomach ache. Right, a pain in your ch- in your chest, in your side. Shulchan Aruch says in um, Shin Chav Ches, right, and Shin Chav Tes, that you Mechal Shabbos from Makas Chol. It's hard to say that every time a guy gets a stomach ache, it's his Chazaki Sur that he's he's in a death situation. I mean, the vast majority of Makas Chols do not end up in death. So there are a number of Paiskim who argue on the Sam Seifa. If you look in the Likute Aris, he brings a bunch, but certainly. Um, the Chsam Seifa does not seem to be halacha, and as such, we're left with our Shaila. So here's a teretz that I believe is the is the correct teretz. So I believe that the Svar of Hachi Chabrachman would apply even B'chia Gavna, the Hainu. I try to use it on the Dalim Yivamis for this purpose, but you can't learn out from a Hachi Chabrachman. In other words, let's say the statistical chance that one in a thousand or one in a hundred by B'smila, you can't say that's be, but the mitzvah of bismillah is gufa to enter in a in a givisakana, just like what the mitzvah of Rivia also, according to many Paiskim and Silliman Khaskinak came along, does even even according to Mr. the Kiyum of the Mitzvah does sort of necessitate a sakana of some sort. There are many women who never die in childbirth. Um it doesn't necessarily mean that that level of sakana is sanctioned by the Torah at um and out of the realm of Koch Nefesh, it just means that this mitzvah includes a certain danger. The Menchus Kinnach says even more than it. It says by Muhammad, the whole rule of Koch Nefesh doesn't apply, but yet we don't learn out from Muhammad to everywhere else. So what is this young man saying? He's saying there's a concept of mitzvah sibikach. And what does that mean? I'll give you an example. Let's say there's a dinner Mohammed's mitzvah. 
So a guy goes, you know, today they put, they teach him how to drive a tank, etc. And he says, wait, aren't tanks dangerous? You know, they have the Sagar missile, RPGs, etc. They blow up tanks. It's very dangerous. How dangerous is it? Is it more than one in a thousand? Unfortunately, it's much more than one. He says, oh, I'm not allowed to go. You go bust a rave by Pikuach Nefesh and I'm not allowed to go in the tank. And what's the answer? The answer is, the din that Pikuach Nefesh you go bust the meat, you know, we don't allow pikuach nefesh, we say pikuach nefesh, you're done. It's something that has no sakana, right? Something where the mitzvah was to put yourself in danger. You can't say, wait, I should be pater because there's danger here. That's the mitzvah. It's mitzvah sebekach. By Shabbos, there's no din on Shabbos, you have to put yourself in danger. On Shabbos, b'mikra, something dangerous happened. So there's no din in Shabbos, you're supposed to die for Shabbos. So over there, vadi chayshish but by uh, Muhammad over there, Fakir was saying the goal, the, the mitzvah is despite the danger that's there, and it could be a very high danger, we want you to do it. So, of course, the danger can pata. I believe that is the Richter answer. Now we'll go to the other riddle. The other riddle was we said that Shabbos, we don't wear tefillin because the two Isis, I'm a, it's a zilzil to the ice of Shabbos, to put on the ice of tefillin. What, you don't trust the ice of Shabbos? You need tefillin? At the same time, the Shach and the Magan Avram, two 1600 Gainim, both say, the Sephardim, by the way, I believe, don't do it, that we wear tefillin during a bris, why? So the makariv, the ice of tefillin to the ice of mila. Wait a second. We just said on Shabbos, having two ice is a zilzal. The what? If you have the ice of Shabbos and the ice of tefillin, it's like saying, I guess the ice of Shabbos isn't cutting it. Here, by having the tefillin on the mila, what are you saying? I guess the ice of tefillin isn't cutting it, or the ice of mila is not cutting it. So, how do you explain this theory? <laughs> So the Prima Gadam says like this, two Isis are good, they're like two Adim. So on a regular Shabbos, you have a, a Mila, and you also have uh, Shabbos, you have two Adim. But he says on, during the week, you don't have Shabbos, so all you have is Mila and Tefillin. So you, you talk, have two Isis, when you when you mal, you bring the, the, the ice of Tefillin, so now you have by the Mila, the, the bris of Mila and the bris of Tefillin. Right, those are the, the two ices. But however, on the other hand, if you would also wear tefillin on Shabbos, then you'd have three ices. You'd have the tefillin, Shabbos, and Mila. Three ices we don't want. It's a zolzol. I mean, it's a little not mavur like the prima god. Then what would be the zolzol? Because by adam themselves, we say al pishnayim adam or al pishloisha adam you come dover. So why would a third? If you're saying you want two, so then why would the third make the difference if it's al zaitus? If one is enough, so you don't want to, okay. Now you're being mechadish, it's the din of Adim, so have three Adim. But certainly the tarots of the Prima Gadim we could, we could understand. We're going to look, I believe, maybe for a little bit of a better tarots. Then we have Reb Moshe. Moshe says that the, the mitzvah Milo is, is, is the ice, but not the, the, not the mice itself is the, is the ice. The etzem Milo being gemalt is the ice. So says Reb Moshe that by Wing the tefillin during the milah, we're, show, we're showing that just like I'm wearing a tefillin and I'm, uh, being, I'm doing a mitzvah that has an ice in it, I'm going to perform another mitzvah that is also an ice. So by wearing the tefillin, I'm showing like Ke'en, the mitzvah tzirus kavana. I'm showing that what I'm going to do now is 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 a mitzvah, is a mitzvah that, that 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 has in it an ice. I'm doing it for the ice. So Ramayshu's terrace is, is that um, it's the ice on the cotton and the ice on the tefillin. So he says the reason to put on tefillin 
is that to show the importance of ice, we bring the ice to the cotton to do the mila. So it's sort of it's like one ice is coming together with another ice. So it's interesting, even though they're the, the, Ramesh is saying they're two different ices. One is the ice of the cotton, one is the ice of the gadol. But we're by bringing together two ices, that's creating a, a, a sort of a creating an edus of ice. A, Bringing the two ices together. I mean, I would only, Shtelhar and Ramaisha, the idea of an Indian to bring two ices together, would you, would you, um, if somebody's wearing tefillin and shul and he had a compatriot in shul who wasn't wearing tefillin, would there be un- any other Indian for his friend to put on tefillin to say, now we have two ices together? It's like, it, it's, it's, it's just, you know, one ice bringing the other ice. It's, it's a little, just a little bit hard to understand. Um, I think the difference would be that by Shabbos, it's, uh, it's a constant ice. And therefore, by, um, and, and therefore it's a zero, not a zero, but what, what do you need the second ice for? What do you need the ice that's filling for? Shabbos already. It's like you're sort of denying the fact that you have a constant ice on you. Mashenk and Brismil is not a constant ice. It's a, uh, an occasional ice, so to speak. So, that ice obviously was not intended to be as, a, as an alternative or a substitute. And once we're at it, if we're being Isaac in this ice, so, you know, Yahweh Zaka, Yichapar al so to speak, come with this ice and be Isaac in that ice. Okay, so this, this, this Yungaman is saying that Mila is not an ice keseder. I don't know exactly when it would be. Maybe it means it's just Bishas de Mila. But what is the Gemara saying? Menachas mem Gimel Amid Beis. Bishas enichnas David lebeis hamerchas farats mei oimit aram amar oili shemoid aram belay mitzvah. Centuri mei lachshiyatz amela shira shenemer lamatzeach alashminus mizmor al David al Mila shenitna bishminus. He held Mila is vakeret. It's a, it's a continual mitzvah, right? So uh, so if it's a continual mitzvah, lachayret should be a continual ice. So that would be a difficulty with this pshat. That it's two different people. The ois by bris is on the child, and the ois of tefillin is on the father. Mashaike by sham is both on the same person. I mean, the pasuk is not clear. Zois brisi ashetishmu beini ubeinechem ubein zaracha acharecha himelachem kol zacher. And there are certainly paiskim who hold that even after bar mitzvah, a father's mechuyev to be mal his son. So what does that mean? It's sort of his chiv to his son is. To be to be machnis the son into brisay shalavram is his mitzvah. So he's certainly mishtatif at the very least in the bris, right? And he, he, it's a continuation of the bris that we that when he is mamshich the bris to future dairis. So it's mashman that the mila ala ben is also a bris ben a kaddish baruch av. But I could see where you think zach from psukim it's mashman that way and from the halacha it's mashman that way. But I could see where you would think zach on this. I wanted to say the the, the uh, terrace that I believe is correct. The Sefer HaRikeach, the perfumer, right? Rabbi Lazar Rikeach, in Hilchah Shabbos in Malamed, he asked this question, and, and he says, it's very interesting. He says, the ice of Shabbos and the ice of Tefillin are both for Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. But he says, but the ice of Mila is not for Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And let me give you a little bit of a, maybe a hamtaka in what he's saying. There is this, there's two ices here. There's one from Kaviachal's, remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Remember Yitz, remember what I did. The ice of Mila is our ice, where we say we accept an ice on our basar, like a seal of Avdas. Ice you know, like you put a number on or you would put a seal on by an Evid. And what is it saying? We are committed to you. The first two is Kaviachal's committed to us. 
Here we are committed to you. So that's a different ice. Two ices of Kaviyachal, two Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. You say, what do you need for? You had one ice Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. What do you need two? He was saying, one is an ice of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and it's matched by, well, the first one was Mulmaila Lamata, the second one was Mata Lamaila. That's already a different ice. You know, there's, there's a debate. What is a Jew? Is a Jew his actions? Or is a Jew his Bechef Tzayid, even without any actions whatsoever? Are you what you are, or are you what you do? By the way, that could be Damila and Pesach, the two, the two assays. Damila is Mila is, uh, the Dam Pesach is always, is Maha Avoida Zayis Vachem. It's the first mitzvah of Avoida, a service of Kal Yisrael. Mila is who we are. I'll share with you a powerful story I heard over from Ramesh Shapiro. You know, Hevron is a, a Lebedicka place. Like what goes on there doesn't happen in a lot of yeshivas. A lot of big Bali Kishrin, etc. very sharp. And you always like in Hevron a sharp zug. Like a real, like a cutting, slicing zug. So one Purim, they made a play. And the play was, it was a guy came up, it was by Bezdin Shalmaila. A guy came up from the Holocaust. And it was an entire, like, to let him in, you know, by the, you know, the, the, the Malach Gavriel standing by the door. And he asks him, uh, so how are you as a Jew? Did you, uh, were you makbed on uh, Chal of Yisrael? The guy said, no. He says, oh, pas, pas Yisrael? No. But I'm sure you ate kosher. No, no, I didn't eat kosher. I mean... You didn't eat kosher milchiks or fleishiks? He says, fleishiks. He says, you ate chatha? He says, yeah. But Shabbos you kept? No. Yom Tif you kept? No. Yom Kippur you kept? No. Chaza on Yom Kippur? You, you ate? Yeah. So there's a whole tumult. So in Shemayim they say, listen, we can't let you in. It's true you died all Kiddush Hashem. You were killed by Hitler. But we can't let you in. So the guy thinks for a minute, you're not Jewish. What are you? No, Shabbos, Mila, a uh, bris, you're not, you're not Jewish. So the guy looks, this guy who is uh, coming from the gas chambers, his soul looks at the, the Malach, he says, that's funny, he says, Hitler thought I was Jewish. So it made a whole tumult, like, and you could see, like, behind the curtain by the Besden, there's things moving, there's arguing, screaming, you know. So they said, Malach said, we're gonna have to go to the entire here to discuss it. Well, we'll give up sack. So they waited five minutes, ten minutes at the end. There was a shuffle, as a, you know, from, it came quiet behind the machitza, there was a clap on the table, and the clap said, Halacha kehitla. This was in, remember in Hebron, where they wanted the Sharfazag. This Sharfazag won the thing. But what does it mean? You brischa shechasamta bifsereinu. Belidas, the child gets a bris. You know what it means? You're in the army, you're in Svayis Hashem. You're in the army of Kaviyachal. You did do, you didn't do. That's a separate din. But but it says by Mila, doesn't just mean because Mila could be a little dangerous, but it means by t- taking the Eispris Kaidish and putting it on us, a Jew is to a certain extent putting a target on his back. So there are two dinim in ice. There's the ice of Tfilin, the ice of Shabbos, Beiniu, Beinechem, Hashem, she's rested, Shabbos, Vayinafash, Mikhulu. The ice of Briskaidish of Mila is who we are. And who we are, this element of Klal Yisrael, Yisrael of Bishat Chat Yisrael, who's a different ice, and Hitler, Halachik Hitler, can never take that away from us, even by somebody who's. So what does that mean if one day you're in a place and you're feeling, you know, and what's the answer? The answer is, is that, you have your Mila, that part of you, that mitzvah, and that atzmis of who you are, that ice never goes away. Okay, near Alanias Daiti.